This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Tuesday, and uh, boy, happy post-day one at the GOP convention. Hope you're having a great day recovering from all of the chaos. I keep I keep looking in that stadium, yeah. and they keep showing the, the, the wide shot. Yeah. Plenty of seats still available. Plenty yeah. of great seats. Lots of seats still available now, if granted, you're day looking one, for tickets. Maybe it fills up later in the week, but still, <laughs> it's like... Day. The upper bowl area, yeah. plenty of oh, great plenty seats. plenty of seats. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to fill the whole bowl, right? I mean, that's a lot. I mean, they're not. it's not Barack Obama. Then do you get a smaller building to fit your crowd? No. Oh, okay. Because you had to put your stage in there. Oh, you're right. The famous stage that has made got so much attention. Hey, we have got a lot to talk about. We'll be talking about um, the convention, of course, and the... The uh, the hullabaloo all around Melania's speech. She apparently borrowed from Michelle Obama's speech. No. These are common words. <laughs> They're common words. They're okay. common feelings. Granted, they're stringed together in a very similar way, yeah, maybe we'll, verbatim we'll, Yeah, in we'll some even cases, give you a little side-by-side. Side. But not, not, not plagiarism. Not plagiarism. So we'll be getting to that. Also, got a great guest coming up. Dr. Heath Brown will be joining us to talk about presidential transitions. I mean, one of the complaints I've had about uh, Donald Trump is that if he actually – he seems to lack discipline. Like, yeah. for example, in the middle of his own uh, convention, he's on Fox News counter-programming. He's actually drawing people to Fox News that, I so guess— So Fox pulls away from convention coverage right. to have an interview on the phone with Donald Trump. He's, he's in the building, right. but he can't go up—so you know, so he goes Taking on the phone. Taking people away from his own convention seems counterintuitive. But you need discipline, right? And especially if Donald Trump wins this thing— there's going to have to be a transition between the current Obama administration to the Donald Trump administration or to the Hillary Clinton administration. That transition, they're called presidential transitions. We've got an expert, Dr. Heath Brown, will be joining us talking about the importance and, and some new some maybe some new rules, some regulations that might want that we might want to put in place so these transitions happen in a healthy, safe way. I mean, what if we were to be hit by terrorists in the middle of the transition? It could be devastating. So we'll be talking with Dr. Heath Brown about that. But first, let's get uh, to the headlines with Sadie Nelson. Sadie, welcome and talk to us. What's going on around the rest of the country? Well, thank you, Matt. Um, After an emotional introduction by Pat Smith, the mother of one of the four Americans killed in the September 11th, 2012 terrorist attack in Benghazi, Libya, the Republican National Convention played a video of people recapping the attack, then brought out two of the members of the team that fought in the attack, Mark Geis and John Tegan. The two recounted their traumatic night and, like Smith, blamed Hillary Clinton for not protecting the Americans at the U.S. diplomatic outpost in Benghazi. And all the Republican convention spent an hour on the Benghazi attack. After a last-ditch effort by anti-Trump Republicans to bring about a rules vote at the Republican convention and free delegates bound to the Donald Trump to vote with their consciences instead, the convention floor descended into chaos as the motion was denied. Hashtag never Trump delegates acquired enough signatures to force a national convention vote on the rules. But a GOP official took the stage and set the rules into place amid loud protests from the delegates calling for a roll call vote. 
Melania Trump, a former fashion model born in Slovenia, who was shied away from the public speaking, testified to Trump's heart and love of country in a well-received speech. She sought to broaden her husband's appeal to the general population, including groups that have been outright hostile to his candidacy, saying that the lovebirds love binds their family and that together they would bring compassion to the White House. And finally, the police were tempted to say, uh, hold your horses as they uncovered New Zealand's largest cocaine bust ever inside an 881 pound diamond encrusted horse. Authorities in New Zealand say in a horse, in a horse, (laughs) they said that Saturday uh, in the horse, it it was a glittery head horse, uh, contained 35 bricks of high grade cocaine worth nearly 11 million dollars. Um, but usually in New Zealand, the amount of cocaine seized in a typical year is about 250 grams or half a pound, a statistic crushed by the sculpture. Yeah, that was a good get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sadie, thank you. Welcome. Interesting news in a horse head. I mean, if you're going to hide cocaine, horse head sculpture seems like a great idea. Uh, uh, by the way, an encrusted, a diamond encrusted yeah. horse head. Yeah, it seems like you're drawing attention to something. Yeah, I probably wanna... wouldn't have done diamond. I would have like maybe would have put it in a spam. Yeah, something loaf. that you're not going to look <laughs> twice at. Yeah, I would have gone gone for a mule head. Seems a little Great. less conspicuous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, who's going to think there's eleven whatever pounds? Is it how much was it? Anyway, a lot, a lot. Hey, um, a newsworthy amount. Uh, totally, it made the news. Here's the deal. Uh, last night, day one of the GOP. Convention And it seems like it was a pretty dark show because it's make yes. America safe again. So the GOP highlighted where we're not safe. Right. And so uh, issues like Black Lives Matter. Uh, one of the police officers got that got a sheriff got up there yep. and said Blue Lives Matter. That created a lot of ruckus. Um, a lot of uh, comments about Benghazi. Just it was an interesting way to kick off. It seemed like. Yes. But the, the thing about Donald, apparently, we're going thematically. Make America Safe was last night. Yep. Uh, Rudy Giuliani on fire. Because he, he's, the, he's the 9-11 mayor. Yes. Right? And chance of, like, put Hillary in jail or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that was that's a big deal. That's, uh, that's not I, something you hear play, every... Play clip one. This we, is... we do not need a reckless president who believes she is above the law. Wow. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. For a minute, I thought he was talking about Donald. Yeah, listen, here it goes. Lock Lock her up. up. That's right. Lock her (laughs) up. I mean, that's got to be a first. Mm -hmm. Right? Because they're calling like she should have been indicted. Like, lock her up. Holy cow. Uh, anyway, so that that was a pretty exciting part of the whole event. Uh, then Donald, the Donald Trump appearance. Yes. A- again. We are the champions. Is that what the song was they played from? Yeah. Queen? And okay. I hope he got the rights to that. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll hear about it. <laughs> but one of the things um, that also seemed to be a big deal, because normally the candidate doesn't appear until the very last day. They just kind of are sequestered away. But Donald wanted to appear. Just to introduce Melania. Well, the idea is they do the, you know, from the great state of whatever, and then they say, them, you know, they say who their candidate that they're voting for, and then officially they step forward in their coronation, yeah. and Trump oh. just shows up the first day. And it's just, and he, which was interesting, and I thought it was, you know, who was that man in the shadows? 
Who was it? <laughs> you could tell. Yeah. You could see his outline of his hair and his head. And um, then he introduces his wife. And by the way, apparently stuck to the script because he said very little, mm-hmm. which I thought showed incredible People thought discipline. maybe he'd go off for oh, yeah. 28 minutes. You could minutes. tell he was wanting to. Yeah. He had a microphone. Chomping at the bit. Then Melania got up. And I thought she did a wonderful job, uh, humanized him a little bit, uh, Made him. I mean, I thought she would have taught more, talked more about her immigration, mm-hmm. but she didn't. But because I thought that would have been a really powerful point. But here's the deal: it all went well. A lot of people believe she stole the show because she brought light to the dark evening. And then this morning, I wake up and I find out that Melania may have uh, cribbed. Is that what they're calling it? Cribbed, plagiarized, I mean, yeah. however you want to. Well, plagiarized seems so rough. Well, it, plagiarized seems like that's going all the way. And Cribs seems like maybe you just yeah. stole some ideas, I thoughts, and borrowed words. some thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so the, the idea is Melania borrowed some some language from um, Michelle Obama's 2008 address. Where she was doing the same thing, uh-huh. introducing her husband. Her hubby. And then Paul Manafort came out, who's the spokesperson, the campaign manager for Trump. Trump. And he basically said, fooey. He Not, looks like a Vegas pit boss. Yeah, you, you look at him and you're that. like, this guy's going to throw me out. I don't, I've never even seen a Vegas pit boss. I haven't either, but <laughs> okay. just but, like to say it. Yeah, but you've, you've, <laughs> you've watched The Sopranos. Yeah. Um, so let's listen. This is Melania compared with Michelle Obama's they're kind, speeches. They're let's, kind of laid over each other. We're going to see if, if, how these work. The, the values that you work like, hard for what you, you work want hard in life. For what you want in life. That your word is, that your, your, word bond. is your bond. And you that you do, do what, what you say you're going to do. Keep your promise. That you treat people, that you treat people with, respect. with dignity with and respect. And because, because we want, we want our, our children and all children in this nation to know that the only limit to the height of your achievements is the reach of your dreams and your willingness to work hard for them. Yeah. It's like, oh. That seems pretty conclusive. There's, there's a lot of similarities there. Well, and it's it's one thing to have the same thoughts, mm-hmm. but to use the exact same phrases. And, and long, right. like, tracks of the words in the same exact yeah. sequence. Yeah. Which one was Michelle? Was she the one with the accent or the one without the accent? The ac- without the accent. Okay, the without the accent. Well, actually, it depends on your region of It almost doesn't origin. matter in that clip because no. it's the same language. Yeah. So... It seems like even if she borrowed some stuff, all you'd have to say is, yeah, I did. I mean, that's what – remember, um, President Obama was he, accused of borrowing yeah. language from Patrick Duvall. And yes. And, and he admitted he, it. Yeah, he I, goes, did. Yeah, I, I did. did. Yeah, I did. And, and then everyone just moves on and nobody thinks about it. But kind of in a Trump-esque way, there was no admission – that anything was borrowed from Michelle Obama. They said that she did uh, that. That Melania did a great job. That uh, she brought uh, a great understanding to her husband. You know that, yeah. that was kind of the yeah. press release late last night. Was they didn't even acknowledge it? Yeah, like then so this morning on CNN. Paul Manafort, uh, campaign advisor for Donald Trump, said this: "Who takes the fall for cribbing Michelle Obama's speech in 2008? Whose fault is that?" Well, there's no cribbing of Michelle Obama's speech. You know, these were common words and values that she cares about her family, uh, that, uh, that things like that. I mean, she was speaking in front of 35 million people last night. She knew that. Uh, to think that she would be cribbing Michelle Obama's words is, is crazy. Uh, I mean, it's so. I mean, this is once again an example of when a woman threatens Hillary Clinton 
uh, how uh, she would try seeks out to demean her and uh, and uh, take her down. It's not going to work. Mm. So, okay, there's just yeah, yeah. a moment there uh-huh. where all he had to do was say, "Yeah, sure," you know. Uh, same values. That's great, too. You can have the same values. All right. of those were values. Those were, were feelings and values. But you just can't use the exact same line yeah, or five of them because that's going to create some problems. But Manafort then turned – this is where I think they created a problem because then they turned it into – this is Hillary Clinton they're abusing saying, a fellow female. Yeah, they're saying Hillary Clinton did this. Yeah. She didn't say anything. I mean, they beat up Hillary, like, you know, put her in jail, put her in jail, lock her up, lock her up. But it's another thing to to bring in Hillary into this. Yeah. This was there was a reporter who first kind of went, that sounds familiar. And then other people started looking at it and they talk. I've seen a report this morning. They talked to the speech writer for President Obama, who was involved in that speech with with uh, Michelle Obama. And she's like, yeah, you know, it looks like they took a lot of what I wrote. Again, it's it's always the case where you can – it's the cover-up that's going to hurt you, right? So if you would just admit it – And it's honestly a non-story. It's a non-story. And she she did did, so well that nobody kind of cares. No. Because – okay. But just admit it. But to, honestly, I guess that's the hardest thing to admit, that you borrowed something from Obama after you beat him up for having the worst economy and the worst safety right. yeah. ever. That was the first appearance publicly by Melania Trump in over 40 days. Really? So I they, saw some – Well, they had her – it takes a lot of time to go listen to all of Michelle's speeches. I, I just listened to one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, anyway, I thought she did a great job. She didn't. Yep. This mess didn't need to be there. So luckily, day one is over. Now we can move on to day two. Day two. The theme. The theme. What is it? Make America work again. Well, there's a lot of people that won't like that theme. Why is that? Who wants to work? Eh, It's better not to. Okay. So make America work. So today will be all about the economy and work and jobs, I bet. You'll have speakers. Now, here's some names. Phil Ruffin. Michelle Van Eaton. Okay. Carrie Woolard. They all have direct ties, were they business all? ties oh, okay. to, to Donald Trump. Oh, I so they're they were... people he's worked with to come in and give character of what kind of businessman he is. Oh, I thought they were these were people that were on Happy Days. No, no. Okay, no. Okay. Um, also, House Speaker Paul Ryan and wow. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell okay. will speech or speech will yeah. speak. Um, also, UFC President Dana White. Really, a professional golfer. I believe number 435 in the world in women's golf, Natalie Gublis. Okay. Yeah. What she's going to talk about, make people work again? I have no idea. Uh, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Wow. Another sort of high-ranking Republican will be there. There's three. Yeah. Uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Not sure what role he'll play. Almost vice president. Almost vice president. Apparently really angry, not vice president, yeah. but nonetheless, he's there. Tiffany Trump, Donald Trump Jr., so two of his kids. Ben Carson will sleepwalk to the podium. <laughs> That's um, rude. The general manager of the Trump Winery. Oh, okay. yeah, from Trump Wines. There you go. Um, he, yeah, the winer. Yeah, so... And they'll talk That's about a good day. Trump's economic policy agenda is at odds with mainstream approach to the Republican Party, elected officials that he sharply criticized, talking of free trade agreements. He wants to kind of limit those. Yeah, yeah. So they're going to try to figure out a way to Ooh. massage that into See, a See, this is where they'll get into all the miners in West Virginia. I bet they'll yeah. talk about how, oh, yeah. So it'll be interesting how they do that. But the whole point, mm-hmm. make America work again. Day two. 
Ah, excellent. And well, I, I really enjoy it because I, I'm starting to realize, boy, do I even fit into the Republican Party? And I'm excited to see the Democrats to see, do I even fit into the Democratic Party? Because if not, what party do I fit into? It's interesting, isn't it? This is your uh, government in action, folks. This is how you choose a president. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about presidential transitions, an important uh, step between one, um, one administration to another. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, although America is fairly young as a country, you know, one of the biggest successes of the U.S. is its peaceful transfer of power from one executive leader to the next. And while these transitions can be described as peaceful, they cannot necessarily be described as organized. And uh, thinking about, you know, Donald Trump, a a non-politician, becoming president of the United States, we started thinking, man... What kind of transition or handoff would that be um, from, you know, President Obama, been there eight years, to Donald Trump, who really hasn't been in uh, government administration? So we wanted to talk to an expert on the subject. Dr. Heath Brown is an assistant professor of public policy at John Jay College and author of the book uh, Lobbying the New President, Interests in Transition, and he joins us today to discuss a presidential transition. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being with us today. Matt, thanks so much for having me. This is, I, I think, a very interesting topic. You you hear of the stories of, I think it was the Clinton administration that took all the W's off of the keyboards when George Bush's administration came in as a joke. Um, but that handoff between one administration to another, it's it's critical, but it also seems it's a vulnerable time for the country. I think you're absolutely right in that that famous story about the the W's being removed from the the keyboards. I don't know if anyone's actually substantiated that, but but the message is is there, which is when we have a transition between two different parties, there's obvious room for tension. Uh, two parties that have run against each other um, in a in a presidential campaign, one of them wins, and if that group is coming into the office, there's this area for. Uh, conflict. Uh, that kind of conflict could raise all sorts of risks. And over time, so the last 50 years, there have been continual efforts to try to make the process much more seamless so that those risks aren't too great. Now, talk about how the transition works. Is it, I mean, it seems like it would take years to prepare a transition, but these candidates don't even know they've won until November, and then they have to transition by January. You're absolutely right. The, what we call the sort of the formal transition, uh, the transition period that most people recognize, is between the election and the inauguration, about 11 weeks or right. about 70 odd days. But if you were to think about what it would actually take to make the number of decisions that need to be made, simply moving people in and out of offices, we've all moved homes or moved offices. Right. How long that takes. This planning starts much long before the election, and so we can think of the pre-election transition period 
happening sometimes as long as a year before the election. That's happening right now and, and is happening in anticipation of a victory. Now, hmm. there's a lot of planning that could go on for that, the candidate who doesn't win, but they still have to plan because what if they do win? You don't want to be unprepared for that victory. Right. So, so I guess each candidate, uh, I guess now, President or, uh, um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, they should probably already have transition teams in place. We know that Donald Trump does. Uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, I maybe about eight weeks ago, he announced that Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, was going to be chairing his transition team and, and appears to be doing that uh, to today. We don't know whether Hillary Clinton and, and who she has named to begin her transition planning, but it seems very clear that she's already preparing for this and she has a team. She just hasn't named this publicly yet. Hmm. It's a, uh, it, it, there's a whole side of this that I had never thought about until I read your article um, in prospect.org. Talk about what are the dangers of this time of transition? Um, I mean, I know one of the things you did mention was transparency. There's a lot of people whose hands get in the game that maybe aren't legit. Yeah, I think there's really two sets of, of concerns. One is the concern about not planning. And so there's a lot of people who worry, well, if a candidate is so worried about the accusations of presumptuousness, mm -hmm. the accusations that, well, you're, you're assuming that you're going to win, and that shows your arrogance, if that leads to someone not preparing, that's a major problem. Now, that's a major problem that, that I think um, isn't, isn't usually something that actually happens, but we worry about that. That is under planning. On the other side, what we worry about is planning that happens in secret. That is, as we are electing a new president, as we are casting votes, as we're trying as a public to judge these candidates, there is important decision-making going on that we may have no idea about. And that lack of transparency, I think, is a related but, but different kind of problem to worry about. That is, how can we be deciding on the person at the top of the ticket when all sorts of decisions already may have been made, but we don't know it? So there's two sets of concerns, I think, during this time period. And we've talked on the show a lot about the influence of lobbyists at, at, at pretty much every level of creation of legislation. So why wouldn't the lobbyists also be involved in the secretive planning of the next transition? Yeah, I think you're right. We have all sorts of rules that restrict how much a, anyone, including a lobbyist, could give to support a candidate. Uh, those caps are set up so that uh, any individual can't support one candidate uh, so much more than, than everyone else that it's deemed unfair. So we have those kinds of rules. But if you were very interested in getting involved in one of the two candidates and, and trying to help influence the direction of their administration, assuming they win, one of the things you might do is try to get to them early, get to them before they win, right. and try to provide them with some ideas. Why don't you consider this person for an important job? Why don't you consider this policy option? That happens. That's happening now. That's, that's happening at the Republican convention. That's going to happen at the Democrats' convention. Those kinds of um, really behind-the-scenes uh, planning starts now, but we really don't know very much about it. They certainly don't announce it when they do it. Yeah, no. Hey, we've got three lobbyists helping us with our transition program. Um, yeah, nobody wants to admit that. But they, we, we know, like in Congress, that a lot of the, the lobbying arms provide manpower. They provide 
um, you know, research and they write articles or they write kind of briefs for the politicians and for the candidates. So, man, it seems like a really interesting way to get some leverage is to just offer. Let me help offer staff for your team to transition. And then all of a sudden you're influencing the entire transition process. I guess that's what you're saying, Dr. Brown, right, is. That needs to be transparent. We need to make sure we know who's on the team and who's making what decisions. Absolutely. There are lobbyists with excellent ideas about what each of the presidents should be doing. They have a wealth of knowledge and experience from years inside and outside of government. There's no reason why lobbyists shouldn't be involved in the planning for a new administration before the election and after the election. That's, I think, not the major question. The question is, how about everybody else? How about everybody else that might have an idea? Do they have the same opportunity to influence the incoming administration like someone who has this insider access? That's, I think, really the question that, that, that I ask in the, the, the piece that I wrote, and, and I hope other people ask. That is, how could we make this period as open and transparent as the rest of the campaigns are. The campaigns get up on stage and tell you what they believe. We don't know as much about what's going on behind the scenes. I think people would be interested in that if candidates shared that part of their campaign. Yeah, you bet. And um, are, are there no laws? Are there no laws? Are there no rules for how the transition works? There are some rules, and uh, federal law has increasingly provided assistance to the candidates during the transition period so that new laws have made um, money available after the convention to the two major candidates to help them begin to do their preparations. There are now laws on the book which require the, the sitting administration to begin to share information with the candidates so that each of the major candidates can designate people on their uh, transition team that will receive security briefings so that once they win, they're not caught off guard on on important issues of national concern. So there are some rules, but most of those rules don't directly relate to opening up the process. Now, there's a little bit of of, uh, a requirement that if you raise outside money, you have to report that to the government. But even in that case, we get to know just a little bit of information, not nearly as much as we get to know about the campaign contributions that are given mm. uh, to all the different candidates. So there's some rules on the book, but they're not nearly as expansive as for other aspects of politics. And th- th- this is a real threat, too, because, I mean, you with terrorism the way it's working and th- and the way we're being impacted by it, there could be a threat on day one, a major threat on day one, and you could have an administration that doesn't even know the protocols to handle a threat. I think that since the, 19, since the early 1960s, in the midst of the Cold War, when, when similar types of worries were in place, the, the concern was that our enemies would look at this handover of power as a potential open window uh, of, of sort of uh, lack of uh, unity and, and lack of sort of consistent understanding of what the nature of the problems are. That's why the early planning and preparation matters so much. If you don't begin planning long before the inauguration, even long before the election, there's the potential, there's, I think everyone worries that these security threats that are persistent throughout all of our lives would be heightened 
during those early days of the next administration. That's why the planning is so very important, mm. and it's important to be done in a truly comprehensive way. Well, I, I think it's a critical discussion. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Heath Brown. He's Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and author of the book Lobbying the New President, Interest in Transition. He also has a new book out, Pay to Play Politics, How Money Defines the American Democracy. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, continue this discussion about presidential transitions. We'll also get some of the solutions that Dr. Brown uh, proposes Uh, some answers to uh, how we could handle it in the future. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in a few months, just a few months, we are going to have a transition, a, a presidential transition, either to Hillary Clinton's administration or to Donald Trump's administration. And there's a lot of things that uh, have to be in place in order to make that happen. Today, we're talking with uh, Dr. Heath Brown. Dr. Brown is a professor, assistant professor of public policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Author of the book Lobbying the New President, Interests in Transition, which was published in 2012, and uh, another book, uh, Pay to Play Politics, How Money Defines the American Democracy. Dr. Heath Brown, thank you so much for being with us today. Real pleasure. Talk about, um, so the transition, again, it's interesting how we, 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 it's still not formally, I mean, it is, if I'm a candidate and I'm about to be president, i plan. I know with Mitt Romney, he had a really strong team, it seemed like, in place to uh, to do this transition, because I heard a lot about it, because Governor Levitt, who was Utah's governor, was over that. Um, but talk about the. there's not a lot of legislation behind it. There's not a lot of regulation yet. What are you proposing um, as some solutions for how these transitions should go forward? Yeah, I think what, what we've seen over time is from, the, let's say, the, the 1960s, 1950s up to today, there have been increasing efforts, and, and some of them have been legislative, to, to encourage, practically require candidates to begin their transition planning and to do so in partnership with the, in, the sitting administration. What we haven't seen, on the other hand, is efforts to make the process truly open and democratic. And it's on that side, that side that we care about, because this is an election, right? This is a time period where people are going out and they are casting votes. And so it seems to make sense that a process that is so deeply connected to our democratic elections should also be open and transparent in the way that elections are. And so what what I've thought about, and I've thought about with with some colleagues, is to try to think about how how might that work. And and the way I, I see it broken down is sort of questions of who, questions of what, and questions of how. And, and so the qu- first question is who? So who is actually doing the transition work? Who's the staffing the who the who's the staff that's been chosen to do it? And second, what? What are they doing? Who are they holding meetings with? Are these meetings open to the public? Are these meetings just with a certain small group of advisors, or are they being held with a larger group of individuals? And then how? Who's funding this? We know who's funding the campaign, but we don't know as much about who's funding the transition operations. And so I think that if candidates 
And, and if, if the public paid much more attention to this, uh, either through um, developing policies on their own, either voluntary or, or in some ways required, to answer these questions, the process of transition planning would be much more democratic and much more in line with what we expect of elections in general. Hmm. It seems like as a as a lay man here who doesn't get everything politically, that um, the the administration seems like uh, um, a, a certain level of all. It's the leadership of all of the typical bureaucracy of government. Doesn't the bureaucracy of government just go forward and all we're doing with a new transition is replacing the leaders? That you're, you're absolutely right. That, that come November when there's a new election and then in there the inauguration in January, much of the federal government will remain in place. The vast majority of federal employees will not be impacted one way or the other by who wins the election. What we're really talking about is a small tier of, of political appointees, those people that the incoming president is allowed to appoint upon coming into office. Now, those people matter a lot because those are often the people in charge of federal agencies. So what we're talking about is members of the cabinet, uh, those people that advise members of the cabinet, people in the White House, all of those high-ranking officials in the federal government are the people who are going to change when we have a new president in uh, come January. So it's really those people that we're focused on here. The vast majority of, of federal employees uh, aren't impacted one way or the other when a new administration comes into power. Um, you gave an example in your article about uh, Steve Griles, is that his name? Mm -hmm. um, talk about that, because that, I think, gives a really interesting context to why the transparency, like you're saying, the who, the what, the how, how these transitions are funded, why, it, why it's so important and how it plays out long term. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we have is a process that, that begins, as I mentioned, long before the election with, with lots of planning. And the planning goes on essentially behind doors, closed doors. But if you're a savvy political operative, if you're a lobbyist that represents an interest like Stephen Grouse did in the past, what you might want to do is to begin to influence that pre-election transition planning. Now, if you did that successfully, once the uh, election happened and your candidate, the candidate you had backed, either through campaign contributions or your own endorsement, or maybe even your own voting, what you might want to then do is to be named to one of the official transition teams. And in fact, that's what happened to Griles. He was, uh, went from being a lobbyist to being appointed to one of the George W. Bush transition teams in 2000, 2001. And so he was involved in the planning for the Departments of Energy, uh, the Departments of Interior, the exact policy areas that he had lobbied on in the past. Now, if you were very interested in uh, uh, making federal policy, you might want to then move from the transition team into government. And in fact, Riles did just that. He mm. went from a campaign contributor to a member of the transition team and ultimately was appointed to a position in the Department of Interior. It's that trajectory from campaign to transition to administration that is only available to some people. This isn't available to you and I. This isn't right. available to most of your listeners. That's the real question I think that people uh, would want to ask if they paid close attention to how this works. Well, and I don't know how you'd – how do you separate out if – if I was a coal industry lobbyist 
making money lobbying uh, for the coal industry. Then I become a member of the um, the Interior Department. I don't know how I turn off what I used to do. You know what I mean? Like because I'm still I'm in the know, and everyone that were my clients now have access. I mean, it's it just seems like a conflict of interest almost. Well, I think that people worry about that, and I think the uh, Barack Obama transition team worried about that so much so that they had nearly a full lobbying ban, which is to say that if you were had worked as a lobbyist on a specific issue and then you wanted to go work on the transition team, you couldn't devote your time on the transition team to that same issue. Mm. So if you were working on, let's say, oil and natural gas policy as a lobbyist, you could then work on the transition team on education or health care. But you couldn't allow those two areas to overlap for the exact reason yeah. that you mentioned, which is either an uh, actual conflict of interest or, I think as importantly, the perception that there is a conflict of interest. And in those, for those reasons, the Obama administration, when they came into power, enacted a, a series of voluntary practices that tried to insulate their transition team from too much outside influence. Now, they didn't get it perfectly right, right. but they did start to take some initial steps to doing this. And there were indications that the Mitt Romney transition team were going to do something very similar if they had been elected. Mm. And, and in fact, weren't they even – even with Hillary Clinton, they were trying to make sure there were very clear lines between the Clinton Global Initiative program, her husband, and what she was doing. I think there's, there's, there's all sorts of things. Once, once the government is up and running, after the transition – uh, there are all sorts of federal rules to to Protect uh, keep them. these lines very clear. Hmm. But during that 11 weeks, it's much less clear. So a lot of the transition, uh, a lot of the transparency rules that we have for yeah. sitting federal officials don't apply in the same way during the transition period, even though during the transition time period uh, there are important decisions being made. So so for for example. If you wanted to request a document from a sitting federal official, there is a FOIA request, which is a freedom of information. So if you are a citizen of the country, you can uh, request these kinds right. of documents. Now, during the transition period, uh, because the inauguration hasn't happened, the FOIA Act oh, is not right. in They're place. a private so citizen. We, hmm. Exactly. And so, so the, some of the questions we, we might have couldn't be answered in the same way as when the administration is up and running. And I think that's, that's worthy of, uh, of a conversation about. Absolutely. I mean, we think of how much we try to track the candidates and all of their contributions and, and have a line of transparency there. And then we have an 11-week gap. That's, that, that's absurd, right? I mean, that's, that's what needs to be fixed. How, so how do you propose fixing it? I mean, do, is this, should we all just call into our legislators? Do you just need a legislator to say something to, make a, to pass a law? Is that the goal? I think one of the things that, that could be done is the media can pay much more attention. I think that, that your attention to this today, I think, is, is unusual at this point. Uh, most of, of the media, the, our, sort of our, our collective watchdog on politics, is paying much more attention to the very uh, uh, visible forms of the campaign. Who's going to be speaking at the convention? What's going on in the debates? I think one of the solutions here is to pay much more attention to those things that aren't 
uh, as flashy, but may be as important. I think that's one thing. Yeah. I think a second thing is for candidates themselves to enact voluntary policies that they would want to use once they're in office. And so what you often see is candidates say, I am going to be the most ethical and open president that you'll ever have. If that's the case, what, what, what I think we might want to see them do is to begin that process of being open and transparent during their campaign on things like this. Um, much of that, that at this point uh, has to be voluntary because there's, there's uh, few indications that that's going to be uh, addressed in a legislative form. But, but candidates can do it themselves. There's all sorts of ways that, that uh, uh, an individual running for office can voluntarily be transparent and go beyond what's actually required for, of them by law. You bet. Man, uh, I, mean, I think it's just it's great. It's great insight, and I appreciate uh, your willingness to help us with it. Uh, Dr. Brown, we're going to have to have you come back again because I want to talk about your new book and 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 just the whole, I don't know, Citizens United ruling and – we got we got to get into the financing of all of these elections too because something's crazy with that. Dr. Heath Brown, thank you so much for your insights and uh, keep up the great work. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. Thanks so much. Again, Dr. Heath Brown and the uh, the book you got to go you got to go find it, folks. It's uh, it's um, lobbying the new president, interest in transition, and Dr. Heath Brown's his name. We'll take a break and come back, continue the discussion, do a little wrap up of this first hour and. Uh, Maybe a little bit of wrap-up of last night as well. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the election, it's politicians telling you many times what you want to hear, right? That they're going to be the honest, trustworthy one, and um, that they're going to be an open administration. And then you go and you see that it doesn't necessarily follow through that way. One of the big issues that you see with Hillary Clinton and, and her lack of trust, and in fact, the whole reason the whole email scandal came out, was a Freedom of Information Act request about her emails that uh, that came from just some organization, probably I'm betting conservative, you know, anti-Clinton. But they they had the request, and then Hillary obfuscated and, and hid. It seems it appears. In fact, now courts are still deciding about other Freedom of Information Act requests that she they haven't fully come through on. Meanwhile, we look at Donald Trump, and many wonder: Is he? competent enough to manage this administration? Is he disciplined enough to do such a transition? And then we hear Dr. Heath Brown talk about kind of the mixture of both of these. You're choosing a new president. The president has to have competency, but they also have to have character. In uh, Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, he talks about the fact that two things make somebody trustworthy, their character, are they honest and decent, are they are they honest? And their competency, are they competent? Can they actually do the job? And if you notice in our presidential election, that is the big discussion we're having. 
one person we you know is called the liar and we question her integrity and her character and the other is called incompetent and we question their ability neither then seems to be trustworthy to many many people um two of the lowest trusted candidates ever to run so if you want um a healthier more trustworthy government we have to demand trustworthy people, people that possess both the character and the competency. And I get it. I understand politics that, you know, they're going to shift and deny and, and you know, move around and, and try to avoid certain levels of, um, of accountability. However, you're the voter. So be thinking about this. Don't get sucked into all of the arguments and don't just choose one over another and don't just necessarily choose political party necessarily over uh, another Start looking at it. Who do you trust character-wise and competency-wise? Well, what are we supposed to do, Matt, if neither of them seem to meet the the desired need here? Then pray. <laughs> Get on your knees and pray. But in the end, if you can't trust them, you're going to struggle, and it's going to cause more and more problems. It's one thing on the government level, but also look at it in your own life. Are you a person who's living a trustworthy life? Do you have the character to be a a great partner, a great spouse? And do you have the competency? Do you know how to do it? In the end, folks, character and competency, it's what it comes down to in trusting another human being. And it's one thing to beat up our candidates. It's another thing to look at ourselves. And uh, right now, we probably need a lot of people with character, don't we? And a lot of people with competency. Why not demand both? Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Not everybody you know, is born with this handbook to know how to make it through life. So on the show, we give you the information, the latest, the greatest research, the tools, so that you have your own handbook to life. Yes, and you are welcome. Hey, great show for you today. We, uh, we've we been talking about in the first hour last night, uh, day number one of the GOP convention, and also the um, now the allegations that uh, Melania Trump borrowed, air quotes, uh, some sections of Michelle Obama's 2008 address, you know, it's it's creating some questions out there. So we will be getting into some of that in just a few moments. We also have a wonderful guest coming up that will be talking about the millionaire mystique. Uh, this Our guest interviewed hundreds of um, millionaires and has, has gathered some pretty interesting research about millionaires. Did you know about a third of the millionaires in the United States are women? And she's going to be talking about how working women become wealthy and how you can, too. Some great advice on uh, how, to, how to save yourself some money and uh, hopefully become a millionaire like Ben in the ice cream industry. We'll be getting to that as well. But first, let's get to the headlines. Sadie Nelson joins us today to talk about the headlines. What's going on around the rest of the country, Sadie? 
Thank you, Matt. GOP elected officials and political operatives kept returning to one line of attack against Hillary Clinton on Monday, Barack Obama's third term. Amid the usual slams on Benghazi emails and regulatory overreach, Republicans spent the opening day of their convention convention arguing that a Clinton presidency would mean four more years of Obama administration initiatives that Americans clearly don't want. A caregiver of an elderly Zika patient in Utah has been diagnosed with the disease, leaving health officials stumped about how the virus was transmitted from patient to to caregiver. The Utah Department of Health said that it does not know how the caregiver, a family member of the patient, was infected with the Zika virus. The unnamed patient died while infected with the virus and had an underlying condition. The virus has been known to spread only via mosquitoes or directly from person to person through sexual contact. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is investigating how the caregiver could have contracted the virus. Four people are reported injured after a man wielding an axe and a knife attacked passengers on a train in Germany. Three of the injured were hurt seriously and one other person suffered minor injuries. A SWAT-like team shot and killed the attacker, a 17-year-old refugee from Afghanistan, as he tried to flee. In addition to the four people seriously injured, another is suffering from light injuries and 14 people are being treated for shock. And finally, William Wilcox, a wanted man who was trying to catch them all, ended up getting caught by police right outside a police uh, police station. Officers said the 23-year-old Wilcox was in pajama pants standing near a flagpole when they recognized him thanks to a rap sheet that includes a 2014 conviction for receiving stolen property. Oh, wow. Uh Uh-huh. Officials checked records and discovered Wilcox was wanted on a misdemeanor warrant for a failure to appear on breaking and entering charge. Wilcox was taken into custody without incident right when he was trying to catch the Pokemon at the flagpole. (laughs) Poor guy didn't get it. Oh, and man, what a way to go down in your pajama pants. How embarrassing. Sadie, thanks. Interesting stuff. Man, uh, talk about you've got to watch out for this because we have I know a person who is so obsessed with Pokemon now, he hardly even does his job anymore. Well, he's not that good. He couldn't even get Pikachu. I know. Uh, Twice. We're talking about you. I know. I'm just helping out. But you're supposed to like say, I do my job. Well, I do my job, and you guys are obviously just uh, exaggerating the facts. But... No, actually, no. What's the first thing you said to me when you came in? Today? Yeah. Like just a minute ago? Yeah. That's not the first thing I said to you. No, it was. Not today. I've been talking no, no, to you. The for... first thing you said when you just came in a minute ago. Well, I showed you that from my seat in the other room, I have proximity to a Pokestop, so every five minutes I can stock up on supplies. <laughs> Get some Pokeballs, some raspberries. We're doing a radio Yeah, we're doing a radio show, and I'm like totally fretting about our next hour, and right. you're like, "Holy Pokestop!" Right, I just caught a pigeon something or other some bird pokemon just standing yeah. here in the room and then you showed me it's called multitasking you can do more than one thing at a time yeah but you didn't need to leave the building to run down to the corner to i try didn't to get like Pikachu. i said it's from my desk i can just take care of business so but, to speak but didn't you hear th- this one gentleman was arrested well he had a rap sheet they were after him he was a wanted individual why are you wearing pajama pants I don't wear pajama pants. <laughs> you couldn't even get dressed today. I do like the little squirtles on your pajama pants. Thanks. So. What's a squirtle? Yeah. It's a Pokemon. These Pokemon have a lot of funny names. Yes, that's why I changed them. This is ruining the country. No, it's not ruining anything. This and the presidential election. The election may ruin the country. There's a lot of bad things going on. 
right? The entire – the police shootings, the – on both sides of that issue, yep. the election, uh, ISIS, France, Nice, France, and Pokemon. I mean, I don't want to lump them all together, but this world's going to pot. I heard someone talk about today, like, possibly some of the uh, the excitement and the – the willingness of people to try out this Pokemon game might be the idea that maybe they need a distraction from all the negativity that's, that's going on. I know, which it's better than some things that would distract them. Drugs, alcohol. Right. And the game is completely pointless. Totally. That's why I'm wondering why you're so caught up in it. It's just, it's kind of fun to catch them. Yesterday, I've never seen you more giddy than when you ran down the hall on your tippy toes. I had 10 in 30 minutes after the show <laughs> ended. I caught 10 Pokemon. Because somebody put a lure in the yeah. hallway. It was great. This is messed up. Messed up. There's important things going on. Uh, day two of the convention. Day two is going to be called um, Make America Work Again. Make America Work. I don't like the title. Yeah, it's kind of clumsy. But it just it should like bringing work back to America. Yeah. Apparently work is left. We're going to bring it back. Yeah. Which for some people, obviously it has. And that's kind of what they're 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 turning this message towards. You'll have the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Yeah. Majority Leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, otherwise known as the Turtle. The Turtle. A lot of people think he looks like a turtle. Why? Because if you see him versus there was an old uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon, <laughs> Turtle in the Hair. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of look similar. They talk sort of. The but same. he doesn't have a shell. Mm, if you put him in a shell, he looks like a turtle. Have you put him in a shell? No, but they did on TV. Yeah, he looks like a turtle. <clears throat> That's so sad. <laughs> you can't say someone looks like a turtle. Yeah. It's okay. Man. You'll have the uh, the president of uh, Ultimate Fighting. By the way, Dana White. some would say, well, what does that have to do with anything? The man built a business that just sold for $4.3 bill. billion. dollars. He's doing all right. Yeah. So he'll be out there. You'll what have does a, he look like? Uh, he's kind of a shorter, bald guy. Yeah, but not a turtle. No, not a turtle. So you wouldn't dare call him a turtle. Well, if he punches you, it'll hurt. It'd hurt. But if the Senate majority, I don't know if he could lift his arms up to hit you enough. <laughs> He's kind of an older guy. That's just rude. It's kind of true. Um, there's a pro golfer. Yeah, the no one's pretty. Four hundred thirty eighth in the in the world, na- in the nation, world. I guess I saw that listed somewhere. And you know some other business type people that Trump has had some uh, interaction with. Any, to kind of give some any bushes. No, no bushes. No bushes are uh, uh, McCain's on. When's McCain speaking? He's not speaking. He's not even at the convention. Mitt will Mitt be there? Mitt's not there. Weird. Um, what's his name? Uh, Bob Dole was there. Yes, he was. And they that was a neat. They they honored him. But did you see the guy that helped Bob Dole stand up? No. I just saw on Snapchat somebody from CBS News ran up and goes, look, Bob Dole, and then ran away. Well, it was it was really awkward because they're honoring Bob Dole and the cameras are on him. And then it's almost like somebody forgot that they had a job. To, mm. So they ran from behind, leaned down, and gra- grabbed Bob Dole and just stood him up. And then they helped him sit back down. But it looked like pretty aggressive. Like, yeah. like Bob Dole was surprised. Like, oh, we're standing? Oh, really? Anyway, it's, it's You might want to coordinate movements with – with Bob Dole. It's it's interesting that um Bob Dole is the only one there because mm. you know Bob Dole didn't have a great run. No. But he's the only one in the room that is supporting Trump of the past nominees. Right. Of uh, for the last what 30 years? Several cycles, yeah. Mm. Anyway, interesting stuff. Hey, um uh talk to me what else do we have to worry about politically? 
there was a poll on the website YouGov. MeGov? If you go to the website YouGov, I believe YouGov.com. Okay. And they do just sort of random polls. They're not scientific. It's all crowdsourced stuff. But some of it can be kind of interesting. Are they legit? They're polls in the sense that they put up a poll on their website and then you go click on okay, it. Okay, so they're not. Okay. So they're not legit, but it's but, interesting but stuff. But it's interesting data. Uh, if an apocalypse, apocalyptic disaster were to strike, do you think you would survive longer, longer than... Or not survive as long as most of the people in your community. So would you survive longer than most of the people or less? I'd be be dead. dead. I'd be dead before anyone should have died. So it goes through and they they have you break it up by Democrat, Independent, or Republican. Okay. Right? Yeah. Democrats think that they will survive about about as long. So 47% of the Democrats that, that voted here. They think they'd survive about as long as anyone else. As anyone else. Independents think about 40% would survive about as long. Republicans think they'll survive longer. 43% of those uh, responding of Republicans say that they will survive longer than everybody else. Well, of course. They've got their guns. They've got guns. Uh They will conserve their food. They've got ammo. So my question is, like, the preppers. Yeah. Do you think more preppers are Republican or independent? Oh, Republican. Think they're more Republican? I would bet. They did lead off with the Duck Dynasty guy last night. Yeah. He opened the convention. Did he? Oh, I didn't realize that. There was a Duck Dynasty guy. I saw his speech. I didn't realize he was first. So it says if you aggregate the whole – and then then there's the whole rest of this. It's just a conversation between people kind of making fun of the whole thing. But I thought that was kind of some some data. You may not need it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But so, yeah, I I think – I had somebody recently. I'm not going to say names. But somebody in politically in the know was so worried about what's happening to the world that he's like, maybe it's just time everyone – we just move to the woods. Hmm. And I'm like, what? We hmm. – it, it's time that we just kind of – So abandon civilization? Yeah. As we know it? Huh. That sounds a little like extreme. A, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, drastic. I don't want to go there. But I do firmly believe that I will be – I'm. I'll just die early in this process. If 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 the world if it was over and it was like you know Walking Dead time, I'm dead. I don't have enough. I don't have a gun. I don't have ammo. Yeah, I have. I have one. Bullet. You know, you I have know, a bullet that I got in scout camp like 20 years ago. You know your limits. Yeah, it's kind of what you're saying. I know my. Limits. We have the Olympics coming up next month. Yeah, so it's rapidly approaching. Russia may or may not be there, depending on what the. Anti-doping stuff comes down because apparently it was a widespread situation of uh, improprieties in their drug testing that was going on. And this is back in the 2014, I believe, in right. the uh, Winter Olympics. Um, so something else we can look forward to, ISIS apparently is organizing their own Jihad Olympics. Oh, really? They have tug of war, musical chairs, <laughs> events like that. <laughs> That's what it says. Pass the bomb. So the photographs that were captured have kids as young as five taking part in a makeshift jihad Olympics believed to have been staged in the uh, ISIS-controlled city in Iraq. The terrorist group apparently begged people to to the area to join in the fun and take part in the games, including, as I said, tug-of-war, musical chairs. uh, I don't know. Wow. They're trying to entertain people. It seems like... It seems like things may not be on the up and up when it comes to you know positivity as yeah. they're losing cities and they're being driven back by the uh, the Iraqi well, military. So maybe they're, they're, tr- they're trying to help. They, I mean, have some everyone's talking fun. about Brazil. Uh, Zika's getting all the attention, and jihad's not. So it's like, hey, what about us? We still have our Olympics. Throw the javelin. That's not a javelin. 
So I, I guess my question, which um, which event would you rather see, tug of war or musical chairs? Oh, I'd love to see a jihadi musical chairs. <laughs> is that what like survival that of the I don't know. Fit? It's, it's, well, there's going to be one man standing. Is that what it is? It's usually the big guy. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's scary. ISIS, apparently they're on the run. So That's apparently, what I keep hearing. According to our State Department, it's probably they're more involved in a marathon of running away than wow. they are the actual Olympics. Interesting. I mean, maybe the, that's another event. Probably is. Did um, here's an event for you. And by the way, talk about survival. Listen to this crazy story about a man out to see sunrise, and he drifts away on a piece of plywood. Mm. So a man getting ready to watch the sunrise on a piece of plywood in a marina was swept out by the Hudson River. He was in the Hudson? Yeah. The current huh. took him away, and he wound up about two nautical miles away from uh, near Governor's Island. The, oh, now you're in the shipping lanes. <laughs> Whoops. The man was sent drifting into the river on an eight-foot-long piece of plywood on Thursday around 4.45 a.m. Wow. And a little more than a half hour before the sun came up, fire department from New York, uh, Captain Luis Guzzo, said he said he believes the man stayed on the piece of wood because he didn't want to jump into the water and lose his cell phone while swimming back. So he just kept floating. Well, it's reasonable. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Right. I don't know. You float to London? Yeah, I guess. Uh, But here's the deal. We actually have audio and video because, you know, we one of the things we are, we're a radio show with uh, audio. We have audio of the man on the plywood in the shipping lanes when he kind of realized he blew it. I'm sorry, Wilson! Wilson, I'm sorry! I'm sorry! Mm. Wilson! Wilson! Mm. Moving. Who's this Wilson guy? He uh, Wilson about. was a ball. He had a volleyball. Well, that was in the movie. What movie? What are you talking about? Oh, it, I okay. think it was actually a basketball that was, he had, yeah. It was a basketball. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. He so he was doing a, a, a morning sunrise service with his basketball. It was on, like it was like yoga. Yeah, kind it was a, yoga. It was a little yoga, a little sunrise, a little basketball. It's oh. called river yoga. Interesting river yoga. And, he's and it's in, in the, the Hudson, so you mm-hmm. can like catch a disease as you're you're doing all this. He's not in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> I don't know. I've heard stories about the Hudson. Yeah. But it's cleaned up now. Anyway, it's, it's neat that there's not a better relationship than a man and his basketball. But he also felt like he let Wilson down, apparently. Yeah, it's, it was pretty touching. Man. Touching film. Again, that's the video we bring you. No one else brings you live video from a man floating on a piece of plywood. That's what we're here for. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the millionaire mystique. Uh, give you some insights into uh, what the millionaires do to become millionaires. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and uh, maybe even a little wealthier. Stick with us. I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad by all of the things I never had. Welcome back, everybody. If you want to be a billionaire, well, our next guest may be able to help you there. There's about 3 million people in the United States who are millionaires or multimillionaires, and about one-third of those millionaires are women. 
You may ask yourself, how do all these people become so rich? Dr. Jude Miller Burke had the same question. So she interviewed millionaires and made some interesting discussions here to discuss her book, Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy and How You Can Too, is Dr. Jude Miller Burke. Uh, Dr. Burke, uh, Dr. Jude Miller Burke, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. And I love the intro song. It's a cool song, isn't it? It's a great song. You gotta love it. And who doesn't, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a millionaire? Is that, so you just decided, I want to go figure out what millionaires are thinking. Yes, I grew up in a rural area of uh, Minnesota, and people were not driving Mercedes or Bentleys, needless to say. And uh, my parents were 18 years old when they got married and did not have the opportunity to go to college. And so many years down the road, all of my siblings and myself went to college, got graduate degrees, but we pretty much had to figure it out on our own. And then when I moved to an affluent suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, I met so many transplants, so many very wealthy people who had grown up in poverty, had experienced abuse as kids, but somehow they got from the point where they experienced a lot of childhood adversity to success. And I was really curious, you know, they started telling me their stories over a cup of coffee, glass of wine, and I became very curious as to how they accomplished that. And I have been in employee assistance counseling for many, many years. I worked at United Health Group, I worked at Honeywell for 10 years, and then I've done executive coaching. So my role has been to help as many people as possible. And I thought writing a book that's a guidebook, a how-to book, would be the most helpful for people in terms of getting them on the road to success. You make a great point because a lot of us, I mean, if you haven't been raised with money um, or around money or even, you know, in the neighborhood of money, it, uh, it, it, it seems like it's kind of a, it's an uphill battle. I've always heard it's easier to make money with money. And, um, and I guess even the opportunities, the rights, the benefits that come with a family that, that's affluent. Talk to us about, uh, your, your process. So you, you sent out, um, uh, a form to millionaires that you knew. And then I guess you, you got more and more names and started sending out more of these. I, I guess so far, how many uh, millionaires have you reviewed or how many have you investigated and talked about or talked to? I have worked with Dr. Mark Attridge um, out of Minneapolis who does consulting and he's a social science researcher. And we've done several waves of research. Um, Nicholas Brealy, my pub- publisher for the last book, wanted it about women in particular. But we have over 310 men and women we've studied, half of whom are multimillionaires or millionaires. Wow. And these are all self-made people. Interestingly enough, 75% of them were from low-income poverty to middle class. There wow. were 25% of the people that were from a higher income level. So that's why I think this story is so inspirational. Yeah. Um, there's the family hope. backgrounds were interesting in that many of their parents, parents in the 1950s, 1960s, owned their own businesses. So their parents owned the local grocery store or drug store. They learned at an early age around the dinner table that being an entrepreneur is okay, and they learned some of the basics for business. That's great. So one of the things that was handed down then apparently – was in fact this just happened recently i was talking to one of my clients and um her husband struggles in school but is really entrepreneurial 
And I thought, well, man, maybe maybe school's not as not his forte. So if if it's important for him to get the degree, get the degree, but know that he'll probably do better in something he he's really more interested in. But it was it was interesting to see the response of the wife was terrified because she had never been raised around a family of entrepreneurs. She she wanted him to just go get a degree, get a job, and just kind of stick in the job for the next thirty years instead of having that entrepreneurial spirit. Right, but being an entrepreneur uh, really has its roots in different personality types. Yeah. Now, surprisingly, though, with this group, they were very highly educated, and it may have been because we used a snowball sampling, so we d- designed this scientific questionnaire. And uh, over 60% of the people responded. And part of that is because it was the network of, you know, my own network yeah. and also Dr. Mark Attrich's network. But this was a highly educated group. And also, surprisingly, uh, the parents in the 90s, 1950s and 60s also had college degrees. Hmm. Six times more often. So even though these kids who eventually became successful did not grow up with wealth, they grew up with parents who were really demonstrating the value of education, perseverance, conscientiousness, and hard work. Because as you know, when you have your own business, you oh. pretty much work 24-7. Right. And you, yeah, it doesn't go away. Um, so, so one of the things you found out, uh, that the parents were educated, the, the, their children as well were educated, and then they ended up becoming millionaires. They also had parents that owned businesses. But the principles were more education, perseverance, I guess, hard work. What else? What other, what other uh, learnings came out of your, the research? Well, no one had a straight linear path. Everyone, the men and the women, had detours and failures um, at a very high rate, 50%, 70% for detours. Um, they had been fired. They had been laid off. They experienced illnesses. They relocated. They took time off to have children. And the men actually had more failures, but the women had more detours, primarily due to the childbearing and childrearing, mm. and also taking care of other ill family members. Um, some of the success factors that uh, emerged, uh, and again, we used a lot of standardized measures. So these are measures on self-esteem, on work engagement, on social influence that have been used over and over again in social science research. So we compared our group of very successful people to the traditional norms. Um, so as I mentioned, many of them owned businesses. They were friendly, but not necessarily personal at work. Mm. And the women and the men were willing to argue a point to closure, which actually is very difficult for many people. But you know, as you move up in the management chain and, and even owning your own businesses um, or are partners in a clinic, you have to be willing to mediate and deal with the conflict at work. And so these, this was a group of people, including the women, who had learned how to argue a point to closure and not take it personally. Wow, that's, that's an interesting little insight, isn't it? They, so they were, they were adept and skilled in communication, conflict resolution. Right. And one of the things they said was most important to become successful and to be a great leader is good written and verbal communication skills which I think especially today with this, the social media focus is so important to remember that. Man. Um, see, that... They also recommended becoming highly prepared and an expert in your field. So way back when a professor had told me you would be a great psychologist, I think I was all of maybe 18 years old, 
and I was taking psychology courses and we were doing exercises and role plays and I have a passion for my field. I love helping people. I read psychology books all the time. No one else is reading what I'm reading <laughs> in my social group. Um, but I think it's important to pick something that you love and become highly prepared and then become an expert in your field. And, and that's something that is in our circle of influence. That's something anyone can do, right? I mean, it's that, everything you're talking about these aren't, you know, this isn't like you need to raise funding of $10 million. It's you've got to be friendly and pers- but not personal necessarily. I mean, willing to argue to closure, good written and verbal communication skills, highly prepared in your field. I mean, these are doable. They are very doable. And the people I studied were ordinary people that did extraordinary things. And all of their stories are in my book. Along with at the end of each chapter are very specific how-to bullet points. So very specific advice on what kind of work style to develop. What is the best leadership style to motivate the people that you supervise? Um, how do you overcome prejudice and discrimination? Um, some of the other success factors that were recommended were um, self-awareness, self-management, and I have a new wave of research that we have just completed, and I'm writing a new book that will be mm. coming out next spring about rewriting your story to be successful at work. One of the things that emerged is that 40% of the people we studied either experienced um, poverty, childhood adversity, witnessed domestic violence, or had an alcoholic, uh, chemically dependent family member. What percentage was that? 40%. Wow. So yeah. if you think about the extreme experiences these kids had, they grow up, 20 years later, they're in the workplace. So, of course, that adversity is affecting their work style. And in both books, I write about how to know what your own triggers are, how to acknowledge them, and how to uh, learn to manage your triggers. Let me give you a quick example. Yeah, please. Uh, say someone grew up in a family where there's abuse, which, you know, 50 years ago, that was... I don't know, maybe it's more common now, but it was fairly common then, you know, spare the rod, spare the child. Well, then people go into work, and they bring their fears and their insecurities into work, and it affects their relationships. But women need men at work, and men need women. Building social capital with both sexes is so important for success. Mm. And to be authentic and to be comfortable with yourself, uh, to network and to find mentors and it doesn't have to be like one mentor over 20 years but it could be maybe an uncle or an aunt that you respect yeah. or one of your parents or someone at work or someone in a professional network um but to have someone that you you can go to and discuss problems you're experiencing at work is really critical i love it um and just very basic principles is what we're discussing again we're speaking with Dr. Jude Miller-Burke and about her book, Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy and How You Can Too. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion on uh, some of the basic principles of um, becoming a millionaire. And it's interesting, isn't it? We, For many, we think it's so out of reach, except when you listen to the data that we're talking about with our guest, um, it seems pretty common. Yet uh, for so many, just not in their not in their grasp they feel stick with us folks helping you see the good in the world we'll be right back this is the matt townsend show
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, and we are speaking with Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, author of um, the book Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy and How You Can Too, uh, the work of uh, researching and evaluating 300-plus millionaires and gathering the data about their path to becoming a millionaire. And uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke is walking us through some of the key learnings. And, man, if there's anything I'm learning Dr. Uh, Miller-Burke, it's, hey, there's hope. There's a lot of hope, and that's part of why I wrote the book, is to provide inspiration to people. And as I mentioned earlier, my parents were 18 years old and had five children pretty quickly and did not have the opportunity to go to college. But I learned an immense amount from them about being conscientious and owning a business and persistence and overcoming obstacles. And I wanted to write this guidebook, this how-to book, to help more people become successful. You know what? And it, some people think the the pursuit of the millionaire dream is, you know, it's kind of selfish. It's self-absorbed. It's it's shallow. But the reality is if you love what you're doing and you want to impact people's lives, money becomes just a symbol of it, doesn't it? Right. Money is just a symbol. It's really about having an overarching sense of purpose. And I have a whole chapter in the book about what it does for your mental health and your physical health to give back because there are demonstrated research results on you can have a a better physical health and mental health by giving back to other people. And the title's catchy, you know, The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan, you know, her book, you know, in the 1960s. Um, But, no, the book is not about just making money. For instance, I have a whole chapter on resilience because resilience is key to becoming successful and have uh, points about not taking no for an answer, using no as motivation, you know, choosing about what you are going to be stressed about, um, depending less on the opinions of others, which is so hard for most of us, how to increase your sense of control by not letting others define you. And so there's a whole chapter on resilience and strengthening yourself so whatever business or work situation you're in, you have more resources to draw upon. What did you find out about their personal lives? Did they, many would say they have to give up, you know, your personal life to go be a success at this level financially. Did they have strong family lives? Did they have strong marriages and and were they succeeding there as well? Um, Actually, many of the people did have children and were married. And I think it's a given that when you work in corporate America at the very high levels, you are forced more to give up um, some of your freedoms, you know, after being in corporate America for 20 years, different kinds of companies. I think um, it's safe for me to say that, you know, when you have your own business, you have more flexibility, which is, I think, why so many of these people were able to balance work and family, even though it was continued to be challenging. But if you own your own business, you can take off a little bit earlier to go see a soccer game, um, you know, one of your kids, or if you need to take some specialized training to become more of an expert in your field, it's easier to do that. Did um, you, in one of your articles that I read uh, that was in Business Insider, you, you said that there was one trait that they all shared, um, a trait of conscientiousness. Talk about that for a minute with us. Well, this group as a whole is very conscientious whether that be in their personal life or in their work life. Um, They follow through, they're dependable, they're organized. 
So let's take their own finances, for instance, seeing as, you know, the title of the book is focused on millionaires. Um, they don't live outside their means. They're, they're not a group that puts a new car every year on their credit card, you know, or makes payments. Hmm. They earn the money first, and then they spend the money. They live beneath their means. So often you wouldn't even know that these people are millionaires uh, because they have college funds for their kids. So in their work life, people can depend on them. People go to them for stability, for their calmness. And in their personal life, they lead in much the same way. So it's not someone who every January says, oh, I'm going to get a handle on my finances. This is a group that day in and day out has a savings plan. They don't um, fall prey to the princess syndrome, which is uh, one of the syndromes that one of the financial experts that I interview in the book talks about, which is, I need this, I need that, I have to have this. You know, they're a group that's learned that you don't have to buy everything that you want. And what you see on TV isn't necessarily reality, it's TV. Yeah, it's it, so it's interesting because that that takes so much discipline, and it's not it doesn't necessarily jive with the um, kind of the expectation. You know, we think these are people that are driving the nicest cars and you know turning the cars over regularly, but the, instead, it sounds like these are people that buy a car, keep a car, run the car into the ground almost. And that is true. Of course, there are pockets like, you know, suburbs of L.A. or suburbs of Phoenix, you know, and other parts right. of the country where, you know, people are driving very fancy cars. But overall, um, they're a frugal group, and they're a wise group in terms of how they spend their money. They have a savings plan. They have a retirement plan. They invest wisely. They're more protective of their money. Um, and you had mentioned how they feel about their lives earlier in the interview, mm-hmm. and when we measured this group against the norms, it was interesting. They did have a greater life satisfaction, but not that much higher because they still were going home at night. And the women who I studied who were the self-made millionaires were still absorbing that second shift. That's right. So they had help, of course. Um, I think if you have two people working full-time, you you know have to have some kind of help with, you know, the the yard or the home or, you know, watching the kids until you can get home from work. Um, but they still were absorbing that second shift. And so when I speak to groups of women, what I tell them to be aware of is that one of the most important decisions you can make, and this is true for men also, is who you decide to marry. Hmm. You know, is that person going to be supportive of your career? Who's going to get up in the middle of the night when the child is sick? Who's going to take off work the next day when the child needs to go to the doctor if you choose to have children? And to have these discussions up front because you can either spend your life having someone supportive and pulling with you and supporting you in your career, or you can have someone that's working against you. I also really encourage people to think wisely about prenuptial agreements. And, you know, if you're going to have kids, to really spend time thinking through those prenuptial agreements. Um, because so often women tend to leave their full-time careers. And, you know, if you leave your career uh, and 20 years later and you were making even $50,000, that's a lot of loss. So to be mindful of your own 
financial future even if you are a part of a couple. Because there, there is, like you were saying earlier, there's a disparity in, um, you know, in home chore, you know, differences and who's doing what at home and, and even caregiving to adults, to our parents. Uh, and women take a disproportionate amount of, uh, of responsibility for that stuff. And so meanwhile, we're trying to become a millionaire, but women also are carrying this other burden of being the mom being the caregiver, the provider, the cleaner, the – I mean, it's, you really got to make sure you're equally yoked with another person that is pulling the same direction. <laughs> well put. That, that's great. Um, yes, I think that's so important. And we talked earlier about how their lifestyle, you know, they had a greater life satisfaction. They also re- uh, reported a greater um, health um, but interestingly enough, um, as a group, their self-esteem was higher, but the men's self-esteem was higher than the women's in our self-made millionaire group. Really? Was, so as a group, overall, their self-esteem was higher than the normal population. Okay, interesting, but the men still had a higher self-esteem. Right. Interesting. And only about 5% of the men said they were going home at night and absorbing the second shift. I really loved hmm. how honest the men were in our survey in... Um, you know, just the written comments, but also when I interviewed them, because many of the men had run large companies, and they were very forthcoming in saying that, you know, they had someone at home that was doing the second shift and managing the sick family members. Um, The men also, when asked, said it was more difficult for women to become professionally and financially successful. Hmm. 80% of the men said that. And the men also said that it was more difficult for a woman to be a leader because she was expected to act like a man. She had to balance out her competency skills with also being, um, you know, somewhat feminine. And it was just a tightrope to walk. And so the men were very forthcoming about the extra challenges for the women. That's interesting, too, um, because statistically a third then, based on the research, a third of the millionaires are women. And I'm assuming that number is just only increasing now. Yes. So that's true. But it's yep. but the the other two thirds of the men understand that the, the women that have are succeeding, they're doing it. It's a lot harder for them than it was even for the men. Right, and they you know they were men who had run big companies, and so they had hired women and supervised mm-hmm. women and had you know women as peers, and so they saw them over many years and saw the challenges and the struggles. Man, interesting stuff. As we wrap it up. Um, what what would you say is is the one thing that all of us need to remember if we want to kind of start directing our life toward, you know, financial success like that, that maybe the millionaire goal? Well, and may I also say just overall personal success? Yeah. Um, I think conscientiousness is the number one key, and also to make yourself as resilient as possible. You know, to figure out what makes you happy, what strengthens you, whether it's you know, running marathons or prayer or dancing or being with your kids. Find out what nurtures your soul, build your resilience, and then it will be much easier on a day-to-day basis to become conscientious and follow through and dependable. Love it. Uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, thank you so much for your insights and uh, your, your, your hope that you give us to, to go create a healthier life. Thank you, Matt. And the book is The Millionaire Mystique, and it's on Amazon. You bet. And go to JudeMillerBurke.com, another great place to look for it. Millionaire Mystique, how working women become wealthy and how you can, too. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to play a little game. 
As you know, we like the games. It's going to be the acronym game. We're going to try to figure out some acronyms. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, if you're if you're a texter, if you are a, on Twitter, then you have to learn shorthand, right? All of the different little shorthand acronyms. I don't know what we call them. But uh, joining us right now, Sadie Nielsen is going to help us figure out. We're going to do a game, but the game is about shorthand. She's going to give me, I guess, a, an acronym, and I've got to tell you what it means. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. Are you ready for this? I'm so excited. All right. I have not seen any of these, but I am incredibly literate uh, in the Twitter sphere. We'll see about that. Okay. Okay, here we go. Ready? Yes. Number one, I-K-R. You what? I-K-R. I kill randomly. Wow. That was was so close. That was violent. No, no, no. It's I know, right? I know you kill randomly, right? Who says says I-K-R? I thought you were in the Twitter sphere. Yeah, I thought I always said IKR meant I kill randomly. Oh, that's why I thought people were weird. Wow, that's okay. okay these are hard. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Okay, um, AKA, uh, also known as. Yep, that's that easy. That's old Good school. Job. That is very old school. Yeah. Most people should know that. That predates the typewriter. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. Okay, BRB. You BRB, should know this one. Be right back. Yep. Those are easy. Come on, give me a hard one, IDK. Okay. All right. Here we go. I think this one you'll get pretty what? easily too. TMI. Too much information. Yeah, you got that. These are easy. Okay, I don't know. I don't think you're gonna get this next I'll one. I'll get it. I get everything. Okay. What? I K. I know. You do know everything. Wow. I K. I'm super. Well, I know impressed. what I mean. And <laughs> K was no in the last one. Okay. Um, I didn't know this one. Okay. So good luck. A F K. Oh, A F K. America flirts. <laughs> Kardashians. Kardashian Lee. No, no, it's uh, away from the keyboard. Away from keyboard. Get away. So why? Oh, so, so if you're playing a game, you say, "Oh, I've got away AFK." No, away from K keyboard. No, that's that's so, what Terry tells me. So he I'm says, not in the key- away from keyboard. Oh, get away from the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, get a life. I just say get a life. G A L. All right. Okay. Next one. Yes. R O T F L. Rolling on the floor. Laughing. Oh, oh, that's good. <laughs> also known as Ruffle. Yes. Ruffle, 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 ruffle. That's my favorite one. That's good. Yeah. Okay, I'm impressed. Thank you. Um, JK. Just kidding. Yep. These are so easy. You, okay, wait. Give me a hard one. Okay, BRB. Be right back. No, no, this is a new one. Oh, BRB? No, I'm just kidding. We already oh, did that it. one. <laughs> darn it. Darn it. And once the only one left. Uh-oh. YOLO. Yo, okay. Oh, sorry. I should say it as an acronym. Acronym. Y O L O. YOLO. I know this. <laughs> you should know this. Um, one. I say it all the time. It's not like FOMO. YOLO. You only love otters. So close. You do say that all the time. Yeah, you do. What does YOLO mean, Benjamin? You only live once. Usually they say, like, hashtag YOLO, only live once. 
Got to get out there. That's a dumb one. Oh, okay. I like you only love otters. <laughs> that's a better one. Man, thanks, Sadie. Yeah, you're welcome. See, that was, I, you know, I feel hip. I only missed like a third of them. And I'm not even, I'm not even in my youth anymore. I'm in my early middle age. Mm-hmm. Late middle age. Early middle age. <laughs> Sheesh. We'll take a break. We'll come back. One more hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on this side. Top of the morning to you, or bottom, as it may be for some of you out there in listener land. Hey, got a great hour coming up. Uh, Again, the the job of the show, our goal is to help you get the information you need. And who better to enlighten us than Dr. Ron Hager, who um, is here on campus at Brigham Young University, an expert in... um, What's it called? In death prevention. <laughs> That's what we're calling it. Death prevention. Is that it? Mm-hmm. He's a death prevention He's specialist. He's a death prevention specialist. Uh, Is that what his thesis was on? He, he, death he, prevention? Or? Yeah. yeah. Okay. How, I think he wrote a book, How Not to Die, okay. in Seven Easy Steps. It's a wonderful he, title. He actually is a professor, associate professor of exercise sciences and an expert in chronic disease prevention or death avoidance. It's been a long day. Hey, we've got Dr. Ron Hager. He'll be joining us. Also, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, they'll be checking in. And, uh, you know, we'll see what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. If you're really lucky, we're going to get to a few other stories. One will be um, a a story about that that is so important about sometimes because there's issues with cops and, and catching the bad guy. Maybe we need to go back to the old days, the old school methods of catching a criminal, maybe a horse, maybe a lasso. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you know, kinder, gentler way. And then you take him into the street center and put him in the stocks, put him in the stocks. Yeah. We'll be getting to that as well, if you're lucky. And of course, we're going to start it all with the headlines. Sadie Nielsen joins us to give us the headlines. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thank you, Matt. Hillary Clinton took her criticism of Donald Trump up a notch in an interview with Charlie Rose, calling him the most dangerous man to ever run for president in an interview that aired Monday night. She warned that if Trump were to become president, his leadership could run the country into the ground. As for Trump's popularity, Clinton conceded that Trump could be appealing to as many Americans with his simplistic, easy answers. More than 50 retired pro wrestlers have filed a lawsuit against World Wrestling Entertainment over brain and neurological injuries they say were incurred during matches. The plaintiffs, among them Jimmy Superfly Snuka, Joseph Road Warrior Animal Laurinaitis, and other big names, say WWE intentionally avoided liability for injuries by classifying wrestlers as independent contractors. Donald Trump, uh, campaign chairman Paul Manafort, 
thinks it's just really absurd that anyone would even suggest Melania Trump lifted Michelle Obama's words for her speech at the Republican National Convention on Monday night. I mean, she was speaking in front of 35 million people last night, Manafort said on Tuesday morning. She knew that. To think she would be cribbing Michelle Obama's words is crazy. Manafort explained the only reason Trump's words might appear strikingly similar to Obama's is because these are common words and values that she cares about. Um, and in the Olympic news, a man armed with a fire extinguisher attempted to put out the Olympic flame a second time. Uh, this is the second time someone has tried to douse the flame on its trip to the 2016 Summer Games. Um, a video shows a man running from the crowd as the torchbearers pass through Joinville and attempting unsuccessfully to spray the flame with the fire extinguisher before being apprehended by security. The man's motivations were unknown, but he was arrested for attempting to put out the flame, symbolizing the spirit of competition at the Games. Wow. It's actually a really funny video. You should watch it. <laughs> Just like, put that flame out. Uh-huh. Interesting. Okay, we're, let's post that. Do you know somebody that could post that for us, Sadie? Oh, yeah. I think I know I know a girl. Why do you, Sadie knows a girl. You are that girl, Sadie. Sadie is in charge of our social media. Thank you, Sadie. Well done. And uh, go look at our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. Great place to get all the latest and greatest, funniest videos ever, including a few shots of Ben. Sleeping under the counter. Every day. Okay. Got a great show for you today. Um, Here's the deal. Uh, Some of you are just wanting to get away from the political news, right? Because you're probably GOP'd out after last night. You feel like the country's not safe. I know I am. Yeah. But today will be different because the GOP tonight will be talking about how no one has jobs. Right. That's so every day they talk about more safety, more work, get put America back to work day. I think they'll focus more on the more positive side of that. Today they will. Yeah. But how we're going to get people more jobs, more solutions rather than focusing on the lack of jobs. Love that idea. That's what we need. More solutions, not just more problem talk. Um, in the news, though, a lot of stories that we've we've wanted to cover um, that uh, one I, I've got to. Did you know that you're not supposed to reheat certain foods? Did you guys know this? What type of foods? Well, I don't know. Did you know that there are certain foods you shouldn't microwave or re-microwave? I know you can't really – you can try to reheat French fries, but it really never works. French fries are always gross. It's one thing to just have something that would taste bad or ice cream, like you're saying, because that would just turn to cream. I've tried that before. It just – Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And by the way, and and you are an expert ice creamateer. Thank you. Who microwaves ice cream? Yeah, and then that, that was years ago. That was last year. Uh, here's a few things you're not supposed to reheat because mm. they become carcinogenic. Oh, okay. For That's example, great. you did you know you're not supposed to reheat spinach? Okay, I usually just throw it away. Spinach is not safe. <laughs> yeah. Your wife's like, where's the spinach go? I don't know. It was really good, though. Oh, that was so yummy. Um, it's not safe, and it, if you reheat it, it should never be done. It should only be eaten once it's been cooked for the first time. After that, because the nitrates that are found in spinach, when you warm them up, the nitrates transform uh, into nitrites, which becomes a carcinogen. Okay. Bad for the body. Unless you're Popeye. But even Popeye probably can't handle a He just ate it straight from the can, so he didn't even bother to warm it up. No, exactly. Uh, celery. People use celery to prepare their soups, right? But you're not supposed to reheat celery because like spinach, it creates nitrites. 
Okay. Don't well, reheat celery. Nobody should ever even eat celery. So don't so. eat spinach or celery is what I'm hearing. Beets. Or beets. Beets, wow. another food that contains nitrates that are harmful if reheated. They turn into nitrites. Beets. Did you know this? No, but I usually try to avoid all three. So Potatoes. What? Potatoes are very useful because of many health benefits. However, those benefits and their dietary quality are lost if you don't eat them the same day that you've cooked them. Hmm. Eating them on another day and reheating them makes them dangerous for your body instead of useful, according to this article. Unless they're covered with, like, cheese and chili, and then they're fine. Then it doesn't matter. Right. You're going to die It's already bad for you, so go for it. Eggs. Did you know you're not supposed to reheat fried or boiled eggs? Have you ever tried to reheat fried or boiled eggs? No. But it makes them lethal for your organism. Okay. Well, that sounds bad. Yeah. That's lethal for your organism. Chicken is exceptionally dangerous when eaten a day after being prepared. It can cause some digestive problems because the structure of proteins changes the following day. Hmm. This is a reason for worry since chicken contains much protein, uh, much more protein than red meat. Chicken meat should be eaten cold. If you absolutely need to reheat Nothing's chicken. Nothing's better than chewy cold chicken. I'll tell you that right now. What they're saying is no matter what, don't reheat it and eat it. Huh. It's bad for your organism. So cook as much as you need. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Cook in moderation is my rule. Or, or if you do like a whole bunch of fried chicken, just eat it cold because that's pretty good too. Last but not least, oh. mushrooms. Okay. I understand all Reheated this. mushrooms present the highest health risk. They should be eaten immediately after being prepared or eaten cold the following day. When you reheat uh, mushrooms, you put yourself at risk for digestive and even heart problems. Wow. Who knew? Hmm. I always thought the microwave would just the, the, it would just radiate you. But no, it'll nitrate you and it will hurt your organism. Okay. Helping you live longer. Public service. That's right. We're here to serve. Just fulfilled the license. Good job. That's right. <laughs> now we're credible again. Uh, anything any now, headlines? Now to, now to news that does not fulfill the license. What? Willie, Willie the dead whale. Oh, another whale died? Remember we had a whole story and yeah, it was in San Diego. They're trying to get rid of this whale, but there were some problems because there were some covered bridges through the only way to get off the beach. Right, so they couldn't right. get the dump trucks and front loaders in to try to. They were, so they were thinking like, do we chop it up? Do we blow it up? Because you have a multiple ton whale sitting right, you here. you got to do something. Willie the dead whale is a 22 ton female humpback whale. Wow. It uh, washed up on the beach in Southern California. And uh, now they can't seem to get rid of it. The body of the dead humpback whale turned up in Encinita, north of San Diego County, believed to be the same whale that already had been towed out to sea at least five times after <laughs> washing up on, on Los Angeles beaches and in Orange County. Uh, the LA Times reported that the 22-ton female carcass, which first turned up on, on July 1st, yeah. right in time for the July 4th weekend, appeared to be staying away from Newport Beach after being towed out to sea several times. Mommy, what's that bloated, smelly thing? So they tow it out, and it washes back into shore, and they do <laughs> they just so three times. Okay, you know the rule, though. What's that? Anchor it. Anchor well, any dead whale. The, the problem is if you you have to like wrap a rope or a chain around it yeah. and then anchor it and then when it's 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 rotting okay so the rope Careful. just slides right through it and what do you mean what do you mean I don't know what are you I'm, talking about don't I'm, you watch like CSI they go through all this I'm just gonna put this out there again because I think it's a valid option ice cream's good there there are YouTube videos they tried this in Seattle and they took out people's cars. Yeah, you don't want to blow up a dead whale. 
That's. I at least want to see it done. Just watch check YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> That's why they they try not to do it. It just causes a lot of you know casualties Great when it comes video to for what's the family. Wally keeps coming back because officials haven't towed towed her out far enough to yeah. see to avoid the winds and currents bringing the forty five foot carcass back to shore. The uh, they said they they were out there with a front loader. Because they decided the San Diego Union Tribune reports that officials in Encinitas plan to cut the decaying whale up, which will now be smelled. They can smell at least a quarter mile away. So that's Ugh. wonderful. Uh, they they want to dump it in the landfill. A construction crew tried to get rid of Wally on Sunday, but they gave up after a part of a forklift snapped off and will resume the efforts on Monday. What no were they doing on. with the forklift? They're trying to pick it up to get it into the dump truck. <laughs> but it broke. You know what? Again. Nature is just majorly confusing to the rest of us. We don't know what to do with a dead whale. In the last story, they talked about why don't you bring in natives that know how to handle a dead carcass right? because they've been handling them for years and let them do their business Mm -hmm. and just pay them whatever, a carcass fee. Carcass fee. The life life, – life – what are they called? Lifeguards on this beach in Encinitas. <laughs> We're trying to cover it up with dirt to keep the oh, smell down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that'll fix it. Just throw sand at it. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like what you do, though, you know, when you found a dead squirrel? They're Everybody like, throw yeah. dirt on it. Just cover it up. It'll go away. Yeah. Wow. We still haven't learned. No. Man, I'm glad we live inland. Not a lot of dead whales around here. And another story. Yeah. Netflix. Uh huh. If you That's- share your password, it could be a federal crime. Netflix changed my password without telling me. That could be a federal crime. Do you know how long it took me to figure that out? How long? Six days. Wow. Six days of no Netflix? What did you do? Did you talk to your family? No. Good. No one, I, you know, creating bad habits. I read a book for a while. <laughs> so if you share your Netflix, Hulu, HBO Go, these are all services. Yeah. They have passwords. You might have been unwittingly committing a federal crime thanks to an appeals court finding that people who share passwords are subject to prosecution under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Isn't that weird? This is the July 5th decision stems from the case of David Nosel, an employee recruiter who used his former assistant's password with that employee's permission to access the candidate's database of his former employer as he prepared to launch a competing firm. Right, so he accessed right. his, He just got into yeah. computers he wasn't supposed to be in. He uh, was sentenced to prison, fined nearly $900,000 for conspiracy and theft of trade secrets, along with three of these Computer Fraud Abuse Act crimes, namely the using an assistant's password to access data without authorization. Because of that ruling, it could be expanded to include, like, Netflix. Well, but if the, if the owner of the password gives you the password, you, they've given you permission. But you're not paying for access. That other person's paying for access. Can we just point something out that's really interesting? A law that protects Netflix, Mm -hmm. but we have laws that don't protect people, humans, from being horribly beat up by large organizations. That's correct. Nor do we have the money as just individuals to go take on these big companies. Correct. We change our passwords. Yep. And we didn't know it, and yet we so we weren't accessing Netflix for a month. So don't sh- a basic don't share your password with like your kids. Okay, well my password is stud dog dot four five. No, it's not. And my I just shared it. Okay, well maybe you need to change it now. So wait, it's dot four five, not four six. Yeah, stud okay. stud dog. Because I've I've been having I, I got the stud yeah. dog part. Yeah, dot four five. But I didn't get the four five. I thought it was yeah. four no, six. No, it's okay. Four five. Okay. 
There you go. Yeah. But don't so use it. So be careful. You, you may be committing you a federal crime. Whatever. Don't share your passwords. Don't share them. Um, again, the expert, the guru for prolonging life so that you don't die, Dr. Ron Hager will be here. We're going to be talking about overeating, a problem a few of us have. Um, I've been hydrating. I've been overhydrating. And my body doesn't like it. And it's changed my pH balance, I'm convinced, because I had chemistry in high school. And Ben looks at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. We'll take a break. Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer in the next segment. You won't want to miss it. Well, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Ooh, a, a song about Ben Wasden. Is that who is that? Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, we are back, folks. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. And joining us in studio, who better than the good Doctor Ron Hager? He is the doctor we call the Death Preventer, <laughs> the man that will keep us from death. Uh, also known as the uh, an expert in chronic disease prevention and an associate professor of exercise sciences here at BYU. Do you want to live forever, Matt? No way. Okay, so not not in this body. So so death is okay. Yeah. Right. It's just bring it on. But you just want to put it off as long as you can. Yeah. I, guess. Okay. I just feel like I've got to get my kids through college. <laughs> okay, and then, and then, then it's okay. Then it doesn't matter. <laughs> we were just talking about a whale that keeps that had died, mm-hmm. and the carcass keeps floating in land. Oh. I mean, to the shore. And they keep towing it out, and then it floats back. I just, I, I want when I die, I, they, I just float away. I don't want to stay keep, away. I don't want to keep floating back. Okay. You know what I mean? So, okay. Dr. Ron, talk to us about uh, overeating. Well, you know, the reason I thought about this, this idea, you know, for our, our little segment today, I came across a study uh, that was conducted in uh, 2012. So it's fairly recent. Um, it was published in uh, an online journal. Uh, called um, PLUS One, uh, stands for Public Library of Science. Um, it's called Hunter-Gatherer Energetics and Human Obesity. So it's kind of an interesting study wow. because, you know, you think about hunter-gatherer societies, and they still exist in some places in the world today. And, you know, you, you think about them being very active, yeah. right? hunting and gathering. Yeah, running around. All day long. Right. And, they, and they, they tend to be fairly lean, like, right? It's and, like the people playing Pokemon. Right. So these people went to – these researchers went to Tanzania. Ooh. And, and they looked at uh, a, a tribe or a group of people there called the Hadza, H-A-D-Z-A. And, and they wanted to find out kind of what their activity levels were like. And, and and what their energy expenditure was because you think well these people you know they, they're always burning calories right right well guess what Matt what they found is that compared to uh, U S and European populations same total energy expenditure really yeah so they they were as sedentary as we are well they're actually more physically active okay but total Count. daily energy expenditure is same. about the same. Interesting. So in other words, and then and the, the researchers talk about this a little bit. They hypothesized and, and kind of tried to say, well, why is that? And they came up with this term compensatory behavior. Ooh. 
And so what they find is that uh, people, in, including, you know, like hunter-gatherers that are very active, physically active, they compensate in other ways to conserve energy, huh. uh, you know, at, during other parts of the day. And studies have also been done in, you know, westernized cultures to show basically the same thing, that people who exercise uh, a lot or, or even just a modest amount – even they tend to compensate by saying things to themselves. You know, I mean, this could be totally subconscious, even. But they, you know, the idea is, you know, well, I exercised this morning, so I can drive my car to work. Oh, interesting. Or yeah. I can take the stair or the elevator instead of the stairs because I'm working out. Yeah. And so, people all over the place, they they tend to kind of want to stay around this level of energy expenditure. Now, see, energy expenditure can be from a few different things. It can be resting metabolism. That's right. just the energy it takes to sort of maintain to your breathe. body. <laughs> and and, and the, the biggest factor in that is body mass, just the size of your body. The bigger your body, the more energy, to keep e- energy it. it takes to keep it going. Yeah. Uh, there's also the thermic effect of food. That's the energy that it takes for your body to break down and process the food that you eat. And that's negligible. That's just small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's uh, the thermic effect of activity. And there's different kinds of activity. There's exercise yeah. and there's non-exercise. And Exercise like meaning aerobic? Yeah, yeah. Or, and non-aerobic? Or, well, or like in the case of the hunter-gatherers, you know, it would be like going out and hunting or foraging looking for food. But this is probably this was evolutionarily designed, right? To because I didn't want to be running all day running 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 die. Right. Right. Run out of energy die. So it's it's conser it's conservation. Right. So so what happens then? You look at this like the Hadza, this hunter gatherer group and they're basically very lean. Yeah. People and you say, well, if they have the same total energy expenditure as people in the U.S., why are seven out of ten adults in the U.S. overweight or obese? So it must be consumption. So it's about overeating. Yeah. And the Hadza don't overeat. Interesting. But, uh, you know, westernized cultures tend to overeat. We stuff it. We, 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 we sell it cheap and stuff it deep. Right. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, and, and I know we got to go to a break in just a minute, but we'll come back and talk about uh, some ideas on some things people can do to kind of become a little more self-aware regarding yeah. their eating habits. Um, we'll, we'll review some some points that a physician, uh, his name's Mark Hyman, I'll tell you a little more about him uh, in a minute. But uh, one of the things I, I came across that he said that I really like, he says, when you think about the foods that you're eating you know, consider whether they were created in a plant or if they were grown on a plant. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, think of that. Right. Yeah, just your breakfast. What does that seem like, like it came more from a manufacturing plant or more from a plant, a plant, plant, plant? Yeah. So, so the idea here, one of the, the main ideas is that our, our food environment has changed. Now you look at the hunter gatherer populations. Their food environment has not changed no. for millennia. Our food environment has changed dramatically. They don't fact, have plants manufacturing. <laughs> right. 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 But one of the, the big issues in our food environment, and, and there's numerous studies that talk about this, and that is that our food is being made so that in a real sense, it's biologically addictive. 
It, it wants to hook you. It does. They want to hook you. Exactly. The and, man. And so, you know, we, we become sort of unsuspecting consumers. Yeah. We just think, well, if it's in the grocery store, I guess it's okay, yeah. right? Why I mean, can't it's not I only poison. have yeah, – why can't I just have one Oreo? Yeah. It's yeah. designed that way. Yeah. So, it, so it's pretty fascinating mm. when you look at this kind of – because see, a lot of people, when they think, I need to lose weight, one of the first things they think of is, well, I've got to exercise more. Got to get – yeah. Yeah. Probably not, maybe. Maybe yeah. diet. Yeah, but you know, uh, there was a, uh, another study that was done that looked at this role of exercise. And, uh, now, I'm not dismissing the role of exercise uh-huh. and expending energy. That, that's, that's very important. But, but you could take a 200-pound man and have them run for an hour, four days a week, and after a month, they would lose five pounds if everything else stayed the same. Interesting. So what I'm saying is, it's not the. It, it's not. It, it, it's it's not very efficient. Mm-hmm. Focus on consumption, f- maybe more than even weight exercise. Exactly. We'll talk about yeah, that more in just get, a minute. We'll get to it more with Dr. Ron Hager, the chronic disease prevention expert, also the death preventer. <laughs> yeah. um, Dr. Ron Hager, from uh, associate professor of exercise sciences here at the College of Life Sciences at BYU. Stick with us. We'll be right back giving you the list, the ideas, the tools to live healthier lives. Stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show in studio, Dr. Ron Hager. Uh, he's a chronic disease prevention expert and also death preventer, uh, which is – it's like a dementor but in the positive way. Right. Yeah, I, guess, I guess so, It's yeah. just a mentor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, Dr. Ron's here to give us some strategies to stop uh, the overeating. It's not always just about the exercise and the, the burning of calories. It seems like it's more about the intake. Right. And so, how you take it in. Exactly. Like I said before, if you look at these hunter-gatherer populations, you know, you, you intuitively would think they would – the reason they're so lean and so fit, uh, that a major part of it intuitively you'd say, was well, because they're just so active. Right. They're, they're just, just moving, moving all day. But total – I mean, yes, they are more active, but total energy expenditure is the same. That's and amazing. I know, That's cool data. That, that really is amazing. Um, Which so, also shows that there's kind of this baseline for humanity, right? That Yeah. We burn, and I guess our bodies know what we need. Yeah, yeah, our bodies do and, know what we need. But you know, it's when you start looking at the highly uh, palatable, highly available, uh, you know, very low cost yeah. foods today in in Western cultures. Uh, you know, Kelly Brownell from Yale University has termed uh, as coined, coined a term a toxic environment. That we live in a toxic environment now, toxic to our health. I'm not talking about like radiation right, or right. stuff like that, but but uh, you know, there's just less opportunity to be active. In, if it's in, made in, in a the plant, world we live in, if it's made in a plant versus found in a plant, grown on a plant grown on or a something. Plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so as we look at this kind of thing, so it's about energy balance, Matt. And you know, there is an an expenditure side of that equation, and that is the things I mentioned before, like resting metabolism, thermic effect of food various forms of physical activity, including activity like exercise, but also just activities of daily yeah. living, whether you choose to take the stairs or the elevator, all of that can 
can actually contribute and make a difference. But when it comes to weight loss and weight maintenance, uh, it's not it's not as equally important as the intake side of the energy balance right. equation. What are some um, rules that you use then for the intake side? Yeah, so you know, so I was looking. One of my favorite uh, you know people when it comes to you know health information is uh, a physician named uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, and uh, Mark Hyman is a is a practicing functional medicine doctor. Functional medicine is a a term that's fairly new. Uh, functional medicine doctors are interested in in helping an individual maximize their potential for their bodies to heal themselves. You know, uh, so they have to get to know the person, obviously, yeah. and, and help the person get to know themselves. But he's also the director of the Cleveland Clinic uh, and the Center for Functional Medicine and the chairman of the board of the Institute for Functional Medicine, where they train doctors to become more functionally oriented. And... Um, and, uh, and, and like I said, research has shown that our, our food supply in Western cultures can be actually biologically addictive. Biologically meaning, you know, it can affect the chemistry in our body, in yeah. our brain uh, with, with sugar and fat and salt and these kinds of things. Um, so so Mar- Mark Hyman, you know, came up with uh, these strategies to stop overeating. Uh, one of the strategies is to eat real food. So that kind of goes back to that, yeah. that quote, eating you know, more foods that are created uh, in a plant, you know, are, are you doing that or are you eating foods that are grown on a plant? So eat eat real food. And that's probably the single most important thing that a person can do to lose weight. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, you know, get whole, unprocessed, unrefined foods in your diet. And so you, you ask yourself, you know, when I eat something, is it coming from a box, a bag, a can, a jar, a bottle? You know, uh, some, sometimes people call these uh, cardboard carbohydrates because yeah. they're they're mostly carbohydrate uh, types of foods, uh, but they're but they're very energy dense uh, and and not not nutrient dense. Okay, you know the nutrients yeah. are the things that you need. Now, nutrient dense foods are the things that are packed full of uh, uh, phytochemicals and uh, and vitamins and minerals. Uh, you know, and those foods, you know. Are the whole foods that you can eat? Seems a, like an, an apple. The difference bro- bro- broccoli yeah. seeds, nuts. Yeah, that that versus a fruit roll up, exactly, which has energy, but it, it, it's not. It has the nutrients it doesn't yeah. have. Yeah, and the process it's going to deliver it. Yeah. It's just going to shoot right through you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, not to be graphic. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so number one is to eat real foods. Uh, another suggestion uh, from Doctor Hyman is to always eat breakfast. Okay, uh, and we've talked a little bit about this on the show before. Yeah. Uh, but you know that if you skip a meal, you know you get hungry uh, sooner. And if there's, you know, not if you have to wait till a certain time to eat, then obviously you're going to be more hungry at right. that time, which which tends to promote overeating. Ben gets hangry. Hang- that's it. That's and right. it's ugly. Yeah, I don't want to go yeah. there. I kind of just black out actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there was a study, well, multiple studies that have been conducted that come out of something called the National Weight Control Registry. Uh, this is a large population-based data collection uh, dump, basically, for people who have had success at losing weight and keeping the weight off. These researchers wanted to know, well, what are some of these characteristics of these people that have had success? Well, one of the characteristics of over 3,000 people that lost an average of 70 pounds and kept it off for yeah. six years, and that, that's considered that's success, huge, yeah. right? Uh, most of them ate breakfast regularly, only 4% of the people who never ate breakfast managed to keep the weight off. 
Plus, you're starving. Yeah, <laughs> you're probably yeah. dying the next. Because yeah. if you, you gave a rule once, don't eat after six p.m. or seven p.m. Yeah, we were talking about some mental health yeah. issues and things like that. To where, uh, you know, it, give yourself at least twelve hours of fasting. Now, obviously, that's most easily done overnight when you're asleep. Right. That's great, though. Yeah. What are some other rules to eat uh, healthier? Well, I really like this one. I'm not very good at it myself. Uh, I know some people that are. Uh, but keep a journal. Yeah. Write down what you're eating. Yeah. Write down what you're eating, everything that you eat. And, what, not, oh, and not, so only, and not only write down what you eat, but write down how you feel Yeah, like after you eat. Right? When, when I track mine, I lose weight. Yeah. Because if you're counting it, you're counting it. If you're not, it's, you're slipping stuff yeah. in. Yeah. Interesting. Now we've and we've sort of mentioned you know this idea of getting sufficient sleep. Uh, it was there was a study published recently in 2010, the Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism, found that even a partial night's sleep, a single partial night's sleep, where there's some deprivation, yeah. sleep deprivation occurring, uh, it, that it has been linked to um, insulin resistance. Oh boy! And and insulin resistance Here actually promotes diabetes. fat storage. Yeah. Oh, does it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, because yeah, because you're you got to cover yourself. Yeah. 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 And, and, there's, there, and there, there's a couple others. Uh, control your stress. Now, this doesn't happen to everybody, but a lot of people, when they get stressed, now it could be marital stress, financial stress, just stress at work, any, any kind of stress, uh, people tend to overeat. Now, not everybody does that. Some people get stressed and they actually don't eat, don't eat yeah. anything at all. But more often than not, it's the other way around. People tend to overeat when they get stressed or they, they don't eat as well. Yeah. You know, they don't eat the, the best kinds of foods. And then one of the last ones uh, that Dr. Hyman mentions is to exercise. Now, we've said that exercise is probably the smaller part uh, of the influence on weight loss in terms of energy balance. But, you know, I don't want anybody, you know, leaving, you know, what we're saying today, thinking that, oh, yeah, they said we don't have to exercise or be physically <laughs> active. It's okay. It, it's not okay. You should because next to quitting smoking, if you're a smoker, regular exercise is probably the best thing for, yeah. your, for your overall health. So regardless of, of weight loss you know, and contributions to obesity, it still has a huge impact on your health. So I want to make sure I emphasize that. But it can also be part of a weight loss and a weight maintenance program. Those 3,000 weight control masters, they're called from the National Weight Control Registry that lost 70 pounds and kept it off for six years. Yes, they ate breakfast, but they also averaged an hour of daily exercise. Oh, wow, did they? Yeah. Yeah, so every day they averaged an hour of exercise. And plus just the chemical benefits, the self-confidence you feel, and just having a life. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and... Some research now is also coming out because, you know, the, the pattern used to be to say, you know, steady state exercise, kind of the aerobic, you know, just mm-hmm. the, you know, find something you can do for a long period of time at kind of a moderate intensity. There's some really cool research coming out now to show that vigorous intensity yeah. exercise. So where you exercise very intensely, then you take a little break. And uh-huh. then you exercise intensely uh, like um, some kind of cycling. Like tennis. Yeah, like tennis. Exactly. That that actually helps you know promote insulin sensitivity and reduce the risk of diabetes and obesity and those kinds of things. So those are a few things good stuff. Uh, for people to think about. Uh, but given our current food environment, the amount of marketing that's done, the kind of manufacturing that's producing the foods we're eating, uh, until there's some kind of regulation, which you know I don't know if I'm a big fan of or not, a person has to take charge for yeah. himself. That's it. That's yeah. why you're the death prevention expert. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Ron Hager, we appreciate you. And remember, um, he's here every other week. So 
If you just stick with us, we'll help you live longer and prevent death. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll uh, be visiting with two of our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. Look at me, look at me, hands in the air like it's good to be alive. And I'm a famous rapper, even when the pastor are all crooked. I can show you how to do Welcome back, everybody. Here we are, hip as can be. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. It's Spencer and Jason Shepard today. Hello, gentlemen. I can ride my bike with no handlebars. With no handlebars. <laughs> Is it, do you know this song? I do know this song. Do you want to lay down a. Uh, uh, some what? Uh, lay down some lines or something? Didn't I just lay down the track? Do you want to lay down some more? I'm saying. Do you want to just keep going? We got time. Let's have Jason do it. Hey, the Weird Al version is so much better. Is it? I, honestly, and he's had some great ones. I think that's pretty close to the top. That, I think it was that good. Do you know? There's it's some, got Donny Osmond in it. It's it, the Flowbots right. that sing that song. I gotta go listen. I gotta go listen to the Weird Al. You know, I think anybody whose name is Weird something, it just says Weird. Like Weird. What if we said now? Let's go to Weird Jason Shepard. Well, once you put that before the name, you've pretty much set up <laughs> the way you're supposed to live your life. Yeah. And what if that started when he was like six? Just completely scarred him for the rest of his life. What if it wasn't a professional decision, but it was more of a social decision? Well, I mean, if you if you go back into his uh, his history, it's about right. It's probably that it happened that way, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Hey, um, guys, have you heard what the NFL is going to do with the footballs? I'm only worried about the Big Twelve today, Matt. <laughs> You're talking about the computer chips? Today? Yes. With the PSI, they're chipping. They're chipping the balls. <laughs> Well, we do it to dogs and cats. Why can't yeah. we do it to a football? Hey, we did it to five of our kids. <laughs> we <laughs> done chipped serious. them up. Oh, my goodness. No, but th- they already use chips in soccer balls. But won't they be able to track – because they say they won't be able to track the PSI, right? Um, I think that's what they're saying. But I think they're saying they're going to use it – are they going to use it for, like, end zone plays and know if the ball crossed the line? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't. I hadn't heard that. I thought it was for the PSI. Oh, I thought they couldn't get the PSI. Oh, I thought you guys would know this. Sorry, I'll have to find another source. This is. I'm telling you, I'm only concerned yes. about the Big Twelve today, Matt. But you, you understand, there's not going to be an announcement today. <laughs> Bite your tongue. <laughs> do, you, do you guys? Do you guys know something we don't know? No. no, and that's what's killing us. You know what? I think you need to take the blue goggles off. Oh, they're going on. Jason Shepard is has embraced that. It, it is. It can't be a coincidence that I'm on this show today. <laughs> that's so true. Nobody has championed this more than me right. on air. Right, right, right. This is it. Maybe th- this is the day they announce it, and maybe they'll just just say BYU's in. That would be awesome. I, I yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get into this. There, there's. We were talking about this earlier. There are so many different variables and so many different institutions that are looking out for their best interest, which they should. You know, there's no way whatever happens is going to happen easily. No. They're all self-serving. Yeah. And it's we shouldn't be surprised by that. All the different schools in the Big 12 have their own agenda. That's not a shock. No, it's not. And I think – you know, deep, deep, deep in their hearts, they all want BYU. 
deep down. They just it, can't say it. It depends on the school. I think a majority do. It depends on the school. How could they not want us? I mean, look We're at us. good guys. We're good people. Are you sure everybody in the Big 12 wants the Big 12 conference to continue to exist, Matt? Ooh. Are you starting a rumor? I'm not starting a rumor. I'm just creating... A rumor? Some speculation in all of the <laughs> listeners' minds that not every school in the Big 12, in my opinion, really cares if that conference lasts for that much longer. Well, what would they, they'd have to have a new conference. No, they wouldn't because they would get poached from and form four super conferences. Oh, this is communism. <laughs> there are five conferences with the Power Five distinction right now. Yes. And there has been long rumored to be this movement about 16-team power conferences, 64 teams, 16 in each conference, and guess what? If one conference has to go, why would it not be the conference with the fewest teams? Oh, what a crock. Hey, and it's not that big of a leap because Texas and Oklahoma almost went to the Pac-12 a couple of years ago. Texas and Oklahoma were a few signatures away from going to the Pac-12. Holy cow. How I mean, come? Th- that's why Utah is in because that fell through. This is crazy. Well, th- it was very, very shaky. Are you sure this? This seems really dark. I, th- look, this is just—it's the seedy underbelly. This they didn't the, mention this at the GOP conference last night. This is a side of things that people need to understand when you have your own agenda and you carry the biggest stick in the Big Twelve. And when I say that, I'm looking at Texas. Yes, they'll be fine. Like they don't. If they, they don't want care. to keep the majority of the money in the Longhorn Network and whatnot for, you know, however many years they can, great. Because guess what? If the Big 12 gets poached from, they're going to be the first team poached. <laughs> why, would they, why would they be worried yeah. about no, they're not. They're being not. poached from? It's Texas. This is, you, know? you guys are kind of doom and gloom. Well, Jason is the blue goggle perspective today. I am I am playing Vader. the role I am playing the role of Jerem Jordan today on this show. <laughs> this is crazy. Jerem wanted to get so far away from this topic. He's up in the woods with the Weeblos. Yes. I know. He opted to go <laughs> on a day trip yeah. with the Weeblos. The wheels on the bus. The Weebluff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Weebluff. Rather than discuss okay. Big Twelve potential so, so expansion. This is what your whole show is about then. Yeah, well, we have Brian Keel on, too. Oh, wow, huge. He's, he's always uh, entertaining. Totally. Definitely opinionated, former NFL and BYU linebacker. Why does he want BYU in the Big 12? Maybe he doesn't, and who would he start at quarterback? Yeah. Maybe maybe there wouldn't be a quarterback. Maybe there would oh. Maybe a linebacker would yes. be a quarterback. And Why BYU not? And the Wildcats. Oh, yeah, the re- yeah. <laughs> this is exciting. That's interesting. I know. Anything goes on your show today. This really is intriguing. Like all of this, give is... me um, so so Brian Kill and then all of the Big Twelve um, darkness. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big Twelve, said some very very interesting things about what he would recommend to the board and the committee in today's meeting, and it's actually good news for fans holding out hope oh. of BYU into the Big 12. Excellent. Unless will... unless Bowlesby doesn't know anything because <laughs> there's a conspiracy to get rid of him. There, I'm just I saying. Would, I would put it past there, the Big 12. That saying. already happened, I think, with the previous commissioner. Oh, this Dan is... Beebe. Yeah, that's right. This, you guys, this is intense. You're going to have a great show. 
It's loaded, man. And this is without the Weeblos leader. Yeah, it's loaded. And we have asked all of BYU Sports Nation to tweet in their predicted headlines for tomorrow in regard to BYU and Big 12 expansion. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Kay. Really, really fun stuff. Be looking in. for mine. I'll be tweeting mine when I get off the air. Okay. I can't uh, wait for that. I've, I've had three drafts of it already, but I'm trying Ooh, to get the final draft. I like it. Yeah, I'll be tweeting it out. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. Oh, Thanks. Thank you, Try sir. not to be too dark. Uh, hey, not this guy. No, no darkness. <laughs> not this guy, Jason. Just logic says. and skepticism. <laughs> all, nothing, but, nothing but rainbows for Jason. <laughs> I need to drink my Dasani sparkling raspberry lemonade. Num, mm, num. Have a good show, guys. Thank you. Knock them dead. Yeah, that's dark. Boy, they're just – I think they're – it's almost like they're making it up. Making it up. Hey, uh, speaking of making it up, an alleged bike thief was stopped in his tracks at a Walmart in south uh, southern Oregon. Thanks to a man, by the way, on a horse with a lasso. Photos given to KTVL show <laughs> – Show a man in a cowboy hat sitting atop a horse with a lasso around a slumped figure. The in- incident took place in a Walmart parking lot in Eagle Point, a small town about 12 miles northeast of Medford. Witnesses say the suspect was caught trying to steal a bike off the rack outside the store, and then he was lassoed to the ground by some masked man with a silver bullet. In his belt. Uh, since being lassoed to the ground, the suspect had been arrested and identified as 23-year-old Victorino Sanchez. And then the man that lassoed him, nobody can find him. He just rode into the set. But he will, but he did say one thing on the way out. Hio Silver, away! And he galloped away. Again, folks, the news you don't get everywhere. Just here. On the Matt Townsend Show. Powerful, powerful stuff. Hey, we got to wrap up the show, and we like to do that with a hero story. And our hero today is a Frisco mother making superhero capes for children of Dallas police officers. Listen to this. From her home office in Frisco, Alicia Lopez has been uh, made a, has made a business out of turning children into superheroes. When four Dallas police officers and one dart officer were shot and killed last Thursday night, Lopez, Lopez felt a calling. I grew up with that constant fear of hugging my father and not knowing if he would come home, Lopez explained. Her father is a Dallas police officer. Every time he left in his uniform, I felt sadness. Lopez's father was not downtown during the deadly shooting, but five families now know the pain that Lopez had worried about as a child. Pain for the families, Lopez said reflectively, and prayers that they can find peace and hope. Lopez is trying to give the children of the Dallas Police Department some peace of mind. I knew I wanted to make capes for real heroes, Lopez explained. I knew I had to get these capes to the children of these officers so that they could feel that way as well. So that's what she did. She put together uh, a bunch of capes for the, her these children. And uh, she said that capes symbolize heroism. All of the strong good guys wear these capes. She's been collecting donations to make capes for the children of the fallen soldiers, and she's uh, she's just charging $10 donation to make a cape for these people. So powerful stuff. She's the hero of the day, Alicia Lopez. Thanks for uh, doing what you can when you can. This is the Matt Townsend Show, trying to help you see the good in the world 
We couldn't do it without you, so join us again tomorrow morning, 9 to noon Eastern Time, right here on BYU Radio. And uh, until then, make it a great one. Watch each other's back, and we'll talk again tomorrow.